Let's drop the green flag on this episode of the Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing. Hey, it's Wyatt. Yes, asking for your help. If you like the show and enjoy the content, please hit the five-star rating on Apple Podcast or on Stitcher. Please consider writing a quick review on the Talent Tank Facebook page, on YouTube, and absolutely on Apple Podcast. And consider joining the discussions in the Talent Tank Insiders group on Facebook. All right, let's get to it. Let's get ready to rumble! In this corner, hailing out of Dothan, Alabama, with the same IQ as Cindy Crawford, Michael Jordan, and Alicia Keys at a 154... Rob Bender Park. What's going on, Wyatt, my brother? Man, I'm so pumped to have you on. Yes, the talent tank is full with Bender on with us. All right. This is good stuff, man. I've known you for a lot of years. and You've inspired millions, millions and millions and millions uh, with your, your Truck Night in America show. But here you are. You're uh, sitting down with me. And mind you, I'm going to drop it right now. This is the second time we are recording this. <laughs> it's always better. <laughs> it's well rehearsed. It had a little technical difficulties. Uh, it was just, uh, it just did not work out. But man, everybody, welcome back to the Talent Tank. We do, as you clicked on today's episode, we have Rob Park, also known as Bender, uh, one of the original 10 Benders out of California. He hails out of Dothan, Alabama today. He recently moved down there to work for Motobilt. Got him in the house and we're going to talk. Where you want to go today? This is this is your show, brother. You you tell me when you, it all started as a as a baby or what? I'm glad you didn't take the bait there because I did. I handed over the keys and you're like, no, 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 no. I don't. Want, I do not. I do not want that. I'm a squirrel, brother. I'm all over the place. You're gonna have to you're gonna have to rope me in here because I'll, I'll go off on a tangent after tangent. Well, I highly encourage those, and you and you know that I highly encourage those. So I've I've known you online since about 2004, just through the Pirate 4x4 community, and you had pinned some uh, very, very badass tech at the time. It really took tech for the guy in the home garage from zero to hero, just like that, with some very, very simple stuff. And we're going to go into that in-depth, seriously, very in-depth here after a bit. You're a West Coast guy. You just moved from uh, Ridgecrest. California, you know, home of the earthquake. Yep, that was fun. <laughs> home of the earthquake. And then you moved back to Alabama. And the first time I met you in person, you were living in Alabama and you were working for, at the time, Blue Torch Fab, which you're back with Dan DeVoice again here now with Motobilt. So it's kind of came full circle a decade, in, you know, decade and a half, I guess, back in California and then back to Alabama. But I'm very excited for you. I'm very excited for you and you know, your wife, you know, you have an amazing wife, by the way. She's killer. Uh, she, one, she's inspiring because anyone follows this woman on online and social media, Danielle. Is her Instagram Bender's wife? Yeah, it's Bender's wife of all things. And I had to be Danielle's husband because she's, she's amazing, man. She's my rock. I'll tell you. Yeah, she works out, you know, like three hours a day. She has abs that you can, you know, bounce quarters off of. She will straight whoop your ass if you look at her crossways. Nah, she's killer. She's absolutely a killer woman. You're lucky to have a girl like that in your corner. And we will talk about her and her inspiration here in a bit. But all right, man, right off the bat, more teeth in Alabama or more teeth in Yucca Valley? 
Ooh, man, that is a hard one. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm still going to go with California on this one. I, I'm having a little bit of a culture shock coming back to Alabama again, you know, being a SoCal guy. But, you know, I'm running around with my 15-inch Dickies, and everybody's looking at me like I'm wearing, like, too short of pants. And, you know, I got a flip bill, and it had, nobody has that here. So I'm kind of a fish out of water. But I, I like the South. I really do. The people are awesome. It's a it's a great place. They're kind of Capri pants. Well, yeah, it's just a, it's definitely a SoCal thing, man. It's uh, you know, you normal pants for people don't know are, are, are shorts or like a thirteen inch dicky, and those are long. But then then you go straight OG, and it's a fifteen inch, and those are harder to come by. Those aren't the, but yeah, they're kind of long. Yeah, <laughs> they're shanks, I guess. Chance. <laughs> oh man, I love it. So we met in person. Like I said, this was about two thousand eight. It was yep. Gray Rock, Alabama, XRA. You were teamed up with a guy named Ken Mercer, Doc Mercer. He had a little uh, single-seat moon buggy turned race car that ended up damn near killing him a couple years later at King of the Hammers. It rolled over and burned on him. That was a a terrible thing. But the amazing thing I remember about the car was it had aluminum knuckles. It had, yeah, it was a cool little rig. It originally was built as a a rock crawler for Bob Standage back in the day. Like, uh, man, early 2000s and a little turbocharged Subaru WRX motor. It was a nasty little motor, and it and it tried to kill Bob a couple times. Had some really gnarly backflips and busted his nose and ran over some competitors' cars. I think it ended up on Joel Randall's roof. You know, he was knocked out and kind of ragdolling in the car. And anyway, fast forward, uh, Ken buys the car, brings it up here, he wants to turn it into an XRA rig, and it had you know four nine inch center sections and aluminum knuckles. It was a super ultra lightweight, you know, rock crawler moon buggy. And uh, Doc had this idea to go to some NASCAR motor builder and build some, you know, for back in the day, it was, it was big 600 plus 650 horsepower LS based motor. And we stuffed it in this, you know, this little 25, 2600 pound car. And it, it was, it would wheelie. It was dumb. It was just dumb. It was fun though. You know, a little power glide and, and you just hang on four wheel steering and it wasn't exactly the smartest thing, but then it, it, I honestly, I think that car sent more, more people or had more ambulance and helicopter rides than any other race car. It sent Doc, you know, three or four ambulance rides and a couple, couple, three helicopter rides. And Bob Standish took some ambulance rides. That car was a little overpowered and underweight. And it was kind of ridiculous from the start, but yeah, it burned, burned to the ground. We called it Christine after a while because it was, it was gnarly, but Doc made it out. Luckily we had a guy stand over the knife and cut him out of the car, man. He, he couldn't get out. Yeah. Joe Bunker. Yeah, that was crazy. Thirty miles or whatever it was, you know, he was he was out in the back back forty back there and and rolled over and, and ruptured a fuel line and he was just fully in, engulfed in flame and couldn't get the seatbelt off. He had one of those twist locks um, kind of seatbelts. That was the last time we ever used those in a car, but he couldn't get it out of the car. And just so happened that the guy standing there shooting pictures just so happened to have a knife and just so happened to be able to get to the car in time and cut him out. Duck suit was burned, but um, you know he took a helicopter ride, but he was. Went to triage from the lake bed and, and, and he was okay. But man, that was a rough one. And I remember that video, you know, being mid 2000s. It was a viral. It was rock crawlers gone wild. It was this rock, this rock buggy. It bounced off, took a hard bounce. You could tell Bob Standage was out cold behind the wheel and it just motored in first gear right into, right into a crowd. Everyone's yeah. bailing left and right. I think it took out an easy up or two. And then finally it hit another rock crawler and crawled up on top and kind of high centered itself on somebody else's roof. And that was someone was able to get over and 
shut it down and get Bob out. But yeah, was, that car was that car was nuts. <laughs> that was around 08. And I remember being at the driver's meeting there for that XRA race. And you were there. And at the time, you know, we were just some rednecks from Kansas. I was living in Texas at the time, but my whole crew was Kansas guys. And we were looking at you like you're this West Coast kind of hero, right? Uh, uh-huh. We looked up to you online for, for many years. And it's going to sound like I'm, you know, blowing your head up. <laughs> But at the time, you know, now we've come to know each other. And that's what I've also found out about other, let's call it celebrities in rock sports. Everyone's so approachable. Your friends, you kept from the same cloth. It was just very cool. And then you went on to vouch for me and my guys to get into King of the Hammers that next year. Yeah, Dave was talking about it. And he said, hey, we need to, you know, need to open this thing up. And that was before all the qualifying and stuff. It was an uh, invite only. But he's all, you know, you're, you've are you been competing on the East Coast. Who's cool? So, uh you know, I gave a few names, and uh, you guys were definitely on the list. I was going to give you a hard time just now, but you guys were. There's just some about you guys. It was it was in you know infectious. You guys had a you weren't exactly dialed in. You guys were having a rough time, but um, you could tell that it was there, and you guys carried yourself well. And it was going to be it was going to be good for the sport. And you know, I'm I'm proud to say I wasn't I wasn't wrong on that one. Look at what you've done so far. This is pretty amazing. Thank you, absolutely. Thank you, because Dave. I don't know if Dave would have given us the the nod to drive from East Coast to West Coast for that had it not been for that inflection point in my story of you vouching for for me. I really do appreciate that. But then here, I've, I've got you on here, man. So right now, you are currently the head fabricator at Motobill in Dothan, Alabama. That's uh, Jeep parts, Jeep bolt-on parts, welder, do-it-yourself. Yeah, it's kind of a um, – there's some bolt-on stuff a lot. There's bumpers and stuff like that. But I think that I always keep finding myself talking about the, the average Joe or the, the backyard fabricator or the – you know, the, the guy who wants to do it himself, you know, that's what drew me to truck night, but we'll get to that. But the, um, the cool part is Dan has always um, been kind of for the do it yourself or builder kind of guy. It's, it's blurring that line between a, how do I say it? A, a, a professional fabricator and, and a bolt on crowd. So a lot of these parts and stuff that designing you're, you know, backed by engineering and, and you have, you know, hell we have a 10 K laser. It's like, I think it's the most powerful laser in, in, in our off-road industry right now. It's ridiculous. You know, the, all this automation, really high-tech stuff and going in pretty cool directions. But anyway, the, the, you, a home fabricator, a home guy who's working on his rig has doesn't have access to a laser and a CNC brake and stuff. But now he can take those engineered parts and weld those and use them on his rig. So it's not, you know, there's back half kits and front half kits and and suspension systems and stuff. It's not bolt on, not a lot of it's bolt on stuff. It, it takes some, some pretty serious fabrication anyway, but now you're letting those garage guys build stuff that well is professional quality. So it's, it's kind of cool. I'm, I'm digging it. That's what, that's what drew me back, honestly. Well, one thing that I really not, I really didn't believe that I would ever see would be a guy that has a, a CNC plasma table in his garage, still emailing files to Alabama to have laser cut and ship back to them. We have fully the ability to do it right here, but you guys are so much more efficient, quicker. The finish is better. It saves manpower time there in the shop by already having the laser, the laser finish versus the plasma finish that it's actually cheaper to have you guys cut it and ship it. Yeah. A lot of that, a lot of stuff I mean, right now with the influx, you know, we're, we just moved into an 85,000 square foot facility and, and man, it's just gearing up huge. We're, you know, hiring an, an additional, I think we're going up to 75 employees by the, by the end of the year or something like that. It's just ridiculous, but it's neat to see that growth. And you know, Dan, he's, he's a, I'd say visionary, but he's, he's 
he's damn good at it. He has grandiose ideas, kind of like Dave Cole and, you know, Ultra Four and, and he, he sells you on the idea and it's, it's really cool. I, I, I like Dan a lot. He has a, he has a passion that, that kind of draws people. Well, drew me back. All right. All right. Well, we're going to get to that future here down the road, but let's jump back to, uh, <laughs> we'll get the show back, uh, back on track. All right. So you're a California guy, right? I think you were born though, like South Dakota, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I was born in South Dakota. That's what, uh, which not a lot of people do. Jesse Combs, late, late, great Jesse. She, that's how we hit it off. We were both born in Rapid City, South Dakota and, uh, we're at a rock crawling competition and, you know, shooting a breeze and stuff. And that's kind of what, started our friendship and we've been not, not ridiculously close, but I've, you know, we, we shared a lot of time together. So that was, that was pretty cool. But that was, yeah. Anyway, South Dakota guy, um, dad was in the air force, moved to LA, Morro Bay kind of area, Vandenberg. And, and then, uh, you know, that had a kind of normal childhood. He was an electrician guy. He's always, you know, building stuff and, and working on stuff and then racing. And my, my grandpa would race and dad would race motorcycles and stuff like that. So, you know, always being in the, shop and always building stuff and um, that was just kind of a kind of the thing growing up in my early childhood and for those that don't know your father is the the late great crusty yeah crusty that was that was my that was my pops yeah he was a he was like our poster child the tim bender poster child or the the patriarch he was a he was the, the cool dad when when i would race motorcycles and stuff and i was racing you know he's way too old to be on a bike out there but he would he would sign up for his father's son races and stuff and my dad would be out there racing while you know other guys' dads were at home or doing whatever, so he he kind of got adapt, adopted as everybody's dad. He, he had no business being out there, and the only reason he was doing it is so we could spend time together. So, and that went true with wheeling and and, and everything else. So he was everybody's adopted dad. It was pretty cool. He was cool as can be, very cool fella. But he instilled like a early age work ethic in you. Yeah, I'm, I would like to think so. Him and my grandpa both. My grandpa was an auto shop, wood shop. <clears throat> metal shop teacher you know at a young age at seven my my grandpa was uh, taught me a weld and dad was always you know dicking around in the shop so we never had you know we didn't have a lot of money so everything that we did have we built the story i like to tell that the tv show loved it was the uh you know I, I wanted a motorcycle when i was younger who what kid doesn't want a new motorcycle so my uh my grandpa put on this thing where we're going to build a bunch of wagons and and we were going to display him out in front of his friend's little five and dime store. But so he built this fleet of wagons and it was dumb. And I remember hating doing it. But during that time, grandpa and, and my dad were able to, they taught me a lot about, you know, suspension geometry and steering geometry and, and things like that. I didn't understand that that's what they were doing. It's a pretty, pretty trick little wagon. We sold them off and then I, we were able to buy this kind of clapped out bike. And then we, we fixed the bike up and stuff like that. So it's really bitching story. But <laughs> I had to work for everything. And, and I, I try to instill that in my kids too, my, my two boys, but, uh, yeah, it was all went good. Um, this is the, I'll jump to the next one that at, at seven, that was my younger childhood at seven. My, my dad got in some trouble. My mom was, wasn't all that good. So I spent from seven to 12 in, in a state, state housing, foster homes and temporary foster homes and stuff like that. So that was a, in that there was a lot of reflection too. You know, you, you're kind of, not fighting for your life, but we we're bouncing around. They weren't even a, a solid foster home. They were just temporary foster homes. You'd spend a, a month or two here and then a couple months there and you'd bounce around. So, you know, the ability to read people came from a young age too, where you could, you, it was just part of life though, but it made you appreciate things and it made you appreciate or made me appreciate the things that I do have when I, when I do get them. So 
that was all part of the all part of the plan, I guess. You know, it, it all worked that way. And then the grandparents got custody of me when I was like 12 until uh, 15. And dad gets out of jail, big family reunion, and uh, we moved to Ridgecrest. And that was that was pretty cool. It was a well, actually, it wasn't really cool at all when I first <laughs> when when I heard we were moving to the desert, man. I'm like Ridgecrest. That sounds cool, but no, it's in the desert. And I'm like, well, I'm coming from the San Joaquin Valley, and you know, it's green, and I, I thought it was cool, but now we're we're moving to the desert. But as soon as we pull up over the hill, and there was just dust trails on top of dust trails, and bikes crossing the highway, and and dune buggies and stuff, and my smile got big, and I'm like, okay, this is going to be cool. So then. That was really, really cool. Ridgecrest is an awesome place for, well, off-road guys like like us, you know. I think that's a really cool story about you in that you're from a family of racers and a family of innovators and a family of, you know, just being resourceful individuals. So many aren't, you know, like my family, we're farmers. I am would be the first generation to race. And don't get me wrong, my family looks at that as like now today, they're like, oh, yeah, I think you're doing some cool stuff, but. It just doesn't work. I don't know how that works. But somehow in California, it's like you guys are families upon families upon multi-generations, all racers. It's like you look at like off-road the McMillans and now now you look at like Dave Cole and his son. And, you know, it's like it's it's just generational and it's becoming generational. So I think it's, I don't know. Yeah, they were getting all, all gushy on it, but it is. It's cool. I remember my, my fondest memories are, you know, going loading up the bikes when we when we lived in L.A. and when, as just a young kid. And and going to El Mirage and, and riding bikes for the weekend, you know, escaping L.A. and then then going back. But we're talking young kid. I'm, like my first race, I was five in Irwindale Speedway down in Irwindale. That was that was pretty cool. Those, but even being so young, those memories are super vivid. And uh, that you know, I I think that's what I like about off road and and the whole the whole thing, maybe not so much racing, but even racing, you know, it, it involves your whole family, whether, whether they like it or not. <laughs> so it's cool to have, you know, a supportive wife and family. And I don't think, I don't think you could do it if you didn't have, you know, all that extra support. So no matter, you know, whether you're racing or you're just wheeling that, that bond your whole family has to share and and the passion that everyone has to share is, is, is such cool, man. Oh, you're dialed in on that. That's spot on. So you graduated high school about 1988. And I know you're kind of in some some art and some graphic stuff there towards the end of high school, and you end up in Arizona. Yeah, it was uh well, I ended up in high school was 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 cool. I dug high school, but I, during high school, I took all the automotive shops I could. I took all the the art classes I could. I always wanted to be an architect for some reason. I thought an artist would be cool. I didn't quite fit that mold, but I was pretty good at it. And, and uh, so it, you know, during high school, I designed and built some mining equipment and it my summers i would spend out in the el dorado valley just outside of vegas you know testing and, and developing this inland self-contained uh, sorry an inland self-contained sluice box more or less that you could pull with a semi but that was it was really cool to me i just enjoyed building stuff so i went i went to arizona state and went to arizona and, and went to design school and and uh did well followed Followed a chick to Texas though. That was that was probably not <laughs> the smartest thing. She was good looking though. So <laughs> so we, you know my Achilles heel is good looking women. So I, I followed her to Texas and and that was a one chapter. And then we moved back to Vegas and it, it's been bouncing back and forth. You know, if you being a fab guy, you're you don't seem to be in one place too terribly long. 
you know, from project to project, or at least maybe it's just me because I'm kind of ADD, I guess. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I know at some point in there you bounced from that to you end up back in Ridgecrest working at China Lake Weapons. Yeah. So I, when I left Arizona, you know, went to Texas, left Texas, came back to Vegas and then Vegas back to, to Ridgecrest and, you know, just kind of trying to find out where to go, what I was going to do. And uh, there's not a lot of, not a lot of art stuff and or things in Ridgecrest like that. But my, uh, I worked for a United Rentals. I was a started sales guy and, and worked my way up and just a, a little shop. One of the guys I interacted with was a, was a buyer on the China Lake David Weapons Center. So I, you know, we kind of hit it off. And when he needed a junior buyer, he, he called me and said, Hey, you want to do this? And I had an in my mom, my stepmom was a, a division head on base. She was a dispersing officer. So if you ever saw a check come off the China Lake Naval Weapons Center, it had her name on it. It was kind of cool. Anyway, so I went to work at China Lake Naval Weapons Center and, and uh, that was pretty cool. I was, you know, now I had a career. I was going to be a buyer and I was, you know, inventory control and stuff like that. So I was right on track like everybody tells you you should be. You know, did it for a few years and then um, <laughs> this guy shows up and he says he's a recruiter for Enron. I had no idea who Enron was. I had no idea. I just gave him the blank stare and he, he saw the stare and he laughed at me. He chuckled. He says, you really don't know what, what Enron is doing us. You know, sorry, I have no idea. Well, we got your name and I'm a recruiter. I, I, I would like to talk to you. And here's, here's the address. Here's a, why don't you fly in and, and talk to us? And I had no idea who he was. And I said, thanks. And kind of blew him off until I got off work and I went home and I searched what Enron was. <laughs> I'm all, well, how the hell did that happen? So apparently somebody liked me, but uh, I went in for an interview. I talked to the guys. They seemed to, I had something, I guess. And and so here was my, the next step of my career. I became a, a commodities buyer for Enron. <laughs> that's, an, that's an amazing story. And, and come to find out everyone by 2001, late 2001, had heard of Enron at that point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was a... a it was a huge company. It was a. It was actually a great company to work for. Everybody hears about the downturn, but you know, as a, just a an underling, uh, it wasn't involved in the in the bigwig and all the other stuff. But you know, I spent a lot of money and I talked on the phone and it was it was pretty cool, man. I was a suit and a tie and I, you know, Mister Park and it wasn't. I always always went with dirty fingers. My hands are always dirty. My you know, because I'm always building stuff. That that's my true passion. Come to find out later in life, but you know, everybody tells you to you know. To, to go to school, get a good job and, you know, just work hard and, and everything will fall in line. But yeah, we all know Enron collapsed. That was, that was a deal. But during that time, like I said, I'd always built off-road stuff. So I was, I, I started a company um, doing production work. I don't want you to jump ahead too far uh -oh. because <laughs> we haven't even talked about, you know, you can't just say I started you know, doing off-road production work. We haven't really talked about your first experiences wheeling or the beginning of pirate or, the beginning of the benders. That's a pretty big chapter, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Let's wrap up Enron and then we'll bounce back and we'll, then we'll go into wheeling and what happens post Enron. That was kind of funny because your, your pass and mine were pretty close right about the same time. Come to come to find out later in life as we, as we became friends that you were, you were doing some pretty hardcore stuff with mergers and stuff for a company that was kind of a competitor of ours. Yeah. I worked for Dynagy. They recruited me out of college. And I end up in Houston, and if you're in Houston, you knew who Enron was. And I used to park my lifted Duramax, you know, right on the street corner by, in between their two, their headquarters north building and their headquarters south building. And I walked three blocks to Dynagy, 
And then I was on the Dynegy's m and team doing risk assessments when Enron was going down. Uh, and that that catapulted my career. I know for you, it had the opposite effect, right? A lot of people, you know, if you were at Enron, you end up out on the street, broke. I mean, they took your retirement, everything, you lost it all. And for me, I was pretty young at the time. I was only a couple of years out of school and it just catapulted me. And my wife too. My wife, my wife works for an accounting firm and she works for PricewaterhouseCoopers and it took her career and just exploded and we slingshotted it into the yeah. stratosphere and same for same for me and we both ran that same trajectory for 15 plus years she's still there and i'm no longer trading energy anymore um <laughs> so i it, but it did it took me 15 years to to walk away from it and get out but yeah man it was funny when we were we initially were talking and i thought you're a buyer at enron and the path you were on i just started laughing i mean the evil empire they were the <laughs> everybody wanted to work for Enron, but no one would admit it. That's what, right. that's how it, Houston it was. was. Awesome. It was an awesome place to work for. But uh, yeah, now try to get a job, you know, being a buyer and, and you try to get a job after that collapse. They, they think you're the one that actually anybody that had anything to do with Enron would not get touched with a 10 foot pole. But, and, and that worked out in my favor. You know, it was all good. It was a rough chapter. It was, a, I keep saying chapter, but it was a rough time. You know, I had, Thought I was on top of the world. I had my my wife and two kids and, and house and the whole the whole thing and a great career and I I, I thought I was on track, but it, it something just didn't feel right. But I mean, it, when that went down in two thousand one, you had uh you know you had a five year old and you had a one year old. You had a newborn, right? Yeah. I mean that's yeah, hard. Was, yeah. So you've got you, and we'll jump in. So you've got two sons. You've got a son named uh, Justin. He's your oldest. And uh, your youngest is Jordan. And both those guys, they're both military guys today, right? Absolutely, man. That was, I'm super proud of those two. Um, couldn't be any more different. The two are two polar opposite. But uh, Justin, uh, my oldest, he's kind of a, a computer nerd. He was, he was always in the books and super smart kid. Um, he went on, now he's in the uh, Air Force. He's doing um, some stuff with RF frequency jamming or um, cybersecurity stuff. He's, he's just a smart smart kid and uh and my other my youngest kid jordan um not book smart but he's passionate super passionate and uh he loves wrenching and stuff so he was my sidekick in the shop and always has been every time that we we get together we i mean we cuss and we fight and we (laughs) yell at each other just like my dad and my grandpa did with me but uh you know those those times are precious i miss him he's in he's in uh, San Diego and, and Justin, my oldest, is in in New York, so total opposite sides of the country too. But super, yeah, Air Force and Navy. Yeah, that makes for a fun Thanksgiving. It's nonstop talking crap, man. Just it's, <laughs> but it's funny. Jordan's like, but we're real men, and you you guys are in the chair force, and then yeah, but you know we're in the chair force, we're in the air conditioning, and we, we use our brains, not our backs, and it's just just nonstop, blah blah blah. Love them both, but it's funny. I can actually already envision Miller Motorsports listening to this podcast and Eric going, okay, Jordan's the one who does that RF frequency jamming. Okay, I'm hiring him. (laughs) He's going to be on the lake bed. We are next level racing here. We laugh now, but it's, it's, man, this sport has changed so much in the last 10 years that, uh, you know, Levi going full live in the car, just all this stuff is great. We're jumping ahead again, but man. I, I can see some stuff like that going on pretty soon. Right? Yeah, so right around that time frame that 
your first son, Justin, was born. So this is mid nineties. That was the inception of Pirate Four by Four. This is this is the club. This is not the bulletin board. The club started right around then, and you guys were wheeling and you. But they're they're further north. They're Rubicon guys, and you were a little. You guys were a little bit south with the the tin benders, and tin benders started right around then as well. Yeah, this the same kind of thing. We were all from a part of the group. We were all part of a, a four wheel drive club there in Ridgecrest, but uh, it was kind of a split in the club. We liked doing a little more hardcore stuff or a lot more hardcore stuff. And they were um, a little more into just general wheeling and not smashing their rigs up. In fact, that's how I got the name Tin Benders. One of the old guys in the in the club said, a guy followed me into this just crack. And he said, oh, no, no, come run up. Don't follow him. He's a Tin Bender, meaning I smashed my rig up. So that's that coined the, the nickname Tin Bender. And then uh, all the guys that would go on those hardcore runs – none of the other half of the club would ever go on. We, we didn't know we ended up splitting away from the club because we just never went on, on the same runs. It was, it was in essence, two different clubs. And uh, we had no idea what we were going to name ourselves, but the old guys would, or the old club would say, don't, don't go on that run. Those are a bunch of tin benders. So it just stuck. It was just, that was the name given to us. But at the same time, there was Pirates of Rubicon. We had a little website at tinbenders.org and, and Lance had his uh, Pirates of Rubicon thing going on kind of a sister club we end up being, but we would go up to the Rubicon, we'd run some of the trails up there, and then we had some guys come down and run Surprise Canyon. Um, you have to be kind of in the four-wheel drive world for a while now to know what Surprise Canyon they took that from us, but it was it was just right outside of Ridgecrest. So, you know, one of the top 10 four-wheel drive run trails in, in the country, we'd run that quite often. So we we did some runs back and forth together before Pirate went off to its... its uh, you know, full on website thing. And, and then we really got into it. There was some club challenges. We, as the, everybody started becoming web wheelers and, and stuff, then it, the shit talking got worse and worse and worse. And who's, who's the best club, who's the baddest club. So then we had says, you know, we have land use issues with the Rubicon stuff like that. So we, we decided to do a bidders versus pirate thing. It was carnage. Uh, what was the first one? Carnage on the con. You know, it's just a five guys, five of your best guys versus five of our best guys. And let's, let's see who, who's, who's the best. And we, we came out on top, of course, just kidding. It was, <laughs> we, it was great, man. We went up there and we, we wheeled with them and we had we raised a lot of money and, and uh, for land use and had a great time. And, and then uh, we did, people didn't like the name, the Carnage on the Con. So then we did a Carnage for the Con. And that was at Donner Ski Ranch, an actual rock crawling like part. It wasn't just a bunch of chachis on the trail. And that camera was like a Sierra, Sierra crew and, and uh, URJB, a couple other clubs got into the, the thing. There's five clubs got into that one, a rock crawling thing. And we came out on top of that one. So it was pretty cool. We were tight knit group of guys just from a small town, 30,000, 40,000 people. And, and, uh, you know, we recruited outside camo, uh, Eric Linker. Most people know him as, as camo. He's from, from uh, Morro Bay where we had a beach house and, uh, so Camo came running Surprise Canyon with us, but he was the first outside of town tin bender. Camo, you know, as we all know, well, I guess don't know, but <laughs> later on in life, him and Lance uh, kind of partnered up for, for Pirate 4x4. But yeah, we had, we had a couple runs we did together and stuff. Pirate was, uh, man, Pirate was, I think the, the big tangent, you, know, you talk about these, how life life changes. And, and I think, most people in Ultra Four, most people in our in our our world, all have that same tie, and it's all back to Pirate Four by Four. 
I think we can kind of root it back there. I know I dropped it earlier that you had basically inspired you know millions of people, one with Truck Night in America, but for all those little guys back in like the 030405 time period on Pirate 4x4, you pinned a, an article called Two Bending 101. It was a tech it was a technical pamphlet. It was if you printed out, maybe it was eight pages, and it taught a guy how to take a piece of straight HRU or DOM off of his trailer that he or what he got delivered, laid on the floor with chalk and a, and an angle finder and a square and draw the lines of what you wanted this bin to look like. And then to take that and then take this piece of straight pipe tube and put it into your, your bender and replicate the bin that you did in chalk on the floor. And I know that sounds like so simple today to look back at that, but at the time it wasn't so simple. It was, if a guy was going to get a roll cage built for a car or we weren't even into full tube buggies at, at that point, there was, as people were taking their Jeep and adding a roll cage, then adding shock hoops, and then maybe they're adding custom bumpers. So the tube bending, you had to go to like a, a, a race car shop, a hot rod shop and find the guy that could do that. And he could bend it. And then all of a sudden, you came out with this, it just made it so simple and a guy could read through it and he wouldn't be, don't get me wrong, you've probably created just as many bad benders as good benders, <laughs> good fabricators as bad fabricators out of this. I don't want to give you too much credit. But what you did is you made two bending a household thing that you could pull off. It was, you took the guesswork out, you take the complications out of it and showed a guy, hey man, this is two bending for idiots, two bending 101. Sit down with this. If you can draw lines on your shop floor in chalk or Sharpie, you too can build whatever you want out of metal. Absolutely. Whatever your imagination is, man. And it was, it, I would it always, people always would like say, man, it's just so expensive. Everything's so expensive. But like you spend, you know, 300 bucks on a, on a bender and a die. And, and here's honestly, when I first started in the, my grandpa was showing me this, this, you know, they used to lay out battleships and planes the same kind of way, but um, you get the, the thing and it talks about your bend radius and how to take off and this big mathematical equation to, you know, it's not that hard, but it's still confusing as shit. And you, you just stare at it. Most people never used them. And then, so I was like, well, here's just a simple way to, to do it. Here's the way you mark it. Here's the way you do it. You know, I, I, I caught some crap for it from some of the other fabricators out at the time. There wasn't a whole lot of, fabricators in the off-road community it wasn't a monopoly but they you know it was it was something special kind of like a shock tuning guru you know you you had your you could bend tube man and and notch it and it was it's not that difficult anybody can do i don't say anybody but almost anybody can do it you know so yeah it was kind of cool i, I enjoyed doing that and it's, it's it's really surprising it's humbling that uh, it's had the impact that it's had you know even jd2 you know wrote me a letter saying hey thanks because you know Two bending shells went went up went through the roof and and you know there's a lot of people running around today I, I find out later in life that you know people that I respect and great builders that go yeah man I that's actually how I started bending tube or I and I'm not uh are you serious <laughs> here's all this bed tech and tube sharks there's all this stuff out there now and um, that will do it for you but you you don't need all that I will have to add. To uh, the episode, I always have that after the checker flag. I have a little detail. I think that's going to be the perfect place. If I can find the link to Two Bending 101, go look for it in that section. I've got to go find the link. I don't know. I assume it's still up on Pirate 4x4 
bulletin board, but you never know if the Canadians that own it now, they might have deleted the text section. But I have a feeling if I just Google Tube Bending 101, I bet that article is archived somewhere and will pop. Has to. I look, I look back at it now and I just, I'm like, man, that is so simplistic and so almost, almost archaic. But, you know, it's, it's an easy way to do it and you can, you can get some results out of it. So it's kind of cool. But <laughs> you already knew how to fabricate, you knew how to weld. You're working at Enron. You're making good money, but you you still need to find that that outlet. I know you're still making stuff. You're still you're into wheeling. You're breaking your junk. You start a little side business, and you alluded to this earlier. And I held you off. I you know I bade, bade you off on this. You start a little <laughs> side business for nights and weekends welding. Tell me about that company. Yeah, so it was uh, Moto Masters back in the day. It was a uh, fat kid, another another tin bender, uh, whose partner in so we we did a lot of production work. Um, we were the behind the scenes guys. There were some some Toyota and some Jeep guys, uh, big companies out there were selling two two bumpers and rock sliders and you know shock hoops and all that stuff. So we were the guys that were actually building that stuff. So we you know they'd call up and say, hey, I want four hundred pair of shock hoops or some crazy you know <laughs> where you're you're bending three thousand feet of tube in in a week trying to to knock these things out but we would do it we'd sell it for pennies on the dollar to these guys they'd mark it up and they'd, they'd sell it as their own and, and that's great it's you know dollar market still that way but it was it was cool it was i could still you know play off-road and, and support my off-road habit and i could still have my my career and all that stuff but then when when internet collapsed i was i guess i was lucky that i could drop back to that so i was went to work for myself i guess that was the saving grace. It didn't help out my family and my friends and everybody that I talked into investing in Enron <laughs> or my retirement that I've worked on my life for that, that all got taken. That was a big hit. But, you know, I look back at it now and I don't know that I would have changed a whole lot, you know. At least you don't have to worry about what's underneath your fingernails walking into meetings anymore. <laughs> I know you had the same problem. Yeah, you, I know. <laughs> you, you would, you'd go to this big meeting and here's, a, you know, all these big wigs and and. You're sitting on your hands or you'd start talking with your hands and, and or you'd grab something you, ooh, and or you'd go to sign something and your fingernails are long and dirty and there's grease. And, and, you know, I was always embarrassed about that, but you know, you shouldn't be, that's, that's who you are. So, man, it was, it, the stuff under my fingernails, I could always get most of that out. It's like after like sun, you know, coming home from a race or I just did the Sunday CV prep, prep the CVs on my race car and, you have that CV grease all over everything and it doesn't matter what you soak it in, wash it in, rinse it in, scrub it in. It's going to, you're going to have black fingerprints. It like your, your whole, every crease and crevice on your hand <laughs> is going to be black. And See, e even if you had gloves on, like oh, it's yeah. still, you're still going to get it everywhere in the next, you know, so always Monday walking. I mean, you've already break cleaned your hands. Your hands are now dried out because you've been using break clean on to get that shit out of it. Cuticles um, are all split. Yeah, <laughs> and I try I try not to cuss on this show, but I did just drop the S bomb because that's how bad it was. It's just bad. Anybody's CV. ever done a CV before? That is that's like it is CVs are the devil, man. It's it's just grease that won't go away. It's like anti-seize you just a little bit, and you look like the tin tin woodsman. It's insane. And and I have a feeling that's almost like why like uh, guys like Miller and Slauson have hung onto the front, you know, the straight front axle for so long. They're like, nah, man, I could be faster or as fast in a straight front axle, or I'm going to have CV grease all over me, man. <laughs> now for the guy, yeah. I'll let it shake my, shake my eyeballs out of my head before I, uh, 
for everybody, if, for the guys who aren't around the campfire, when you know you've got Lauren and you got Shannon, you got you got these guys, you know these top guys, and uh, there you stand around and man, we cuss independent front ends, just cuss them. They're, they're a necessity. You have to have it now. It's it's just part of it with all the short course and some of the stuff and driver fatigue and bouncing around. You know, it does have its place, but every single person cusses those freaking independent maintenance nightmare expensive sons of oh yeah but anyway i love my solid axles cars. <laughs> yeah love to hate them uh, so yeah so you're you're fabbing nights weekends all this going into 01 enron collapse and then your your company moto masters kind of rose you know took off after the, you know from that point out of the ashes of that just out of necessity yeah um that that was part of it that's when i got the call um Right about then, uh, Lance Clifford, the uh, owner of Pipe 4x4, and Mike Schaefer, they were the the champs back then. They were the – it was – Rock Harlan was still in its infancy, but they were – Mike and Lance went out in this little samurai and just killed everybody. So my, Mike said, hey, I need you to come up here. I was, you know, making some waves in the internet and social media and stuff. And, and uh, so I went up and built uh, built him a chassis, a Diablo 2, and built Jason Shear, his first um, rock crawler, which is kind of cool, his first competition crawler which, you know, I'm pretty proud of that one because Jason's just a, just a badass. Jason, sure, rr, 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 but er. <laughs> no, is, yeah. he is a badass. And just, yeah. a, just a plain ass good dude. Just good dude. Just, yeah. He and his brother, whole family. Yeah, all whole of them. Family. His wife was gorgeous. So here's a, here's a side story, you know, the security show. But Jason comes in and we're building his chassis and he's all excited. We're building Mike's new car, you know, and I'm up in, in, Carson City, Mound House <laughs> area. And home of the Bunny Ranch. <laughs> home of the Bunny Ranch, yeah. Good beer and an interesting conversation for lunches if you go <laughs> go to the Bunny Ranch. But I remember, so I, you know, I, I, I come back from lunch and there is this just beautiful woman standing in the middle of the shop. And I, I paused and I had, I was kind of speechless. I was like, and all I could say was, damn, you were beautiful. And it was just the most awkward. And that was, anyway, it was Jason's wife. So she was, so, well, let me introduce you to my wife. And I said, man, you are one lucky SOB. But yeah, those are back in the day. It's kind of an odd story, but. <laughs> nah, that's okay. I mean, I, I'd love to hear when my wife, someone says she's beautiful. I just like, I mean, your wife is uh, just a stunning knockout, but I can't say that to her in person because I'm afraid she'll kick my ass. So in this instance, I'm like 400 miles away. So she'll have to, she'll have to save it up to like February on the lake bed. <laughs> yeah, she just she just now became a um, she she's always worked in a salon. She owned a salon for a while, and and you know she's a smart girl. And you know years ago, five years ago, something like that, she decided she's going to be Miss Fitness America, and you know spends hours and hours half the day in the gym. She started competing and stuff, and it's super man that if racing was half as hard as bodybuilding or that that. Um, bikini competition stuff i would i just wouldn't do it it's ridiculous the amount of drive and motivation she has so and now she uh it's funny just a couple days ago she's now taking her test to become a um an instructor so she's gonna be a fitness instructor and do beauty salon stuff on the on the side too so i i saw her announcement on that and i was super pumped about that yeah just it's amazing i i'm, I'm a lucky sob too <laughs> so yeah Oh yeah, absolutely. But it takes two, right? She needs you. I mean, she needs you to be there to support her, give her that that confidence to do what she's doing, and likewise, she's giving you the same. 
But, but in art, where we're at chronologically in time, you're in Mountain House. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't want to, you're running around Mountain House. You're running around the Reno area. Uh, you haven't moved down to you moved down to Apple Valley. You move in with some other guys that we all know, uh, like Chris Ridgeway. Shouldn't say we all know. Now Chris is a uh, he's almost a household name. He's a former racer. Was a Porsche driver for a long time, and then lost a leg in motocross. Raced a lot of U4, Ultra 4, 4400, and then uh, people trust this guy to haul multi-million dollar Porsches around the country today. Yeah, you know, for being a, you know, I went and rented a room from him, so we were roommates for a while, and I built, in fact, I built Dave Cole, the the owner of Hammer King, I built his first competition rig in the garage at Chris's house, which was kind of funny, but uh, so Chris was, Chris is crazy, man, he is a super talented driver, he was Super talented on a, on a on a motorcycle. I always raced bikes and stuff, and thought I was fast. But Chris Chris is in a totally different league. He's like the uh, ridiculous Supercross fast, and he had some crashes and stuff, and it and it messed up his feet and uh, ended up costing him a, a leg from the knee down. And then he went to racing Porsches and stuff. But all that said, as crazy as Chris is behind the wheel and how aggressive he is in that towing that hauling company where he hauls these you know ridiculous. The Formula One cars, all kinds of stuff, all over the country, Porsches and stuff. Um, he's fifty-five miles an hour, like just blows my mind. Absolutely to the T, straight laced. You know, just I'm like, what? He's all yep. I'm not going to get in an accident. I've got all this money, but so it's just weird for him to be able to. I didn't picture that him being able to rein back that throttle that, it. Just throttle, just hit it, man. Just hit it. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> just just throttle it back. Yeah, I heard him telling a. He told a story online. It must have, I must have read it. I'm certainly reading it on Facebook in his voice because I can hear it in my head. Him talking about using Dave Cole's IFS car that was built in 0809 time frame, and he's hauling butt down Boone Road, hitting some jumps and stuff. And he has Bailey with him. And but this is Bailey Cole, who's Bailey is now a race car driver today. But the t- you know this is ten years ago, so Bailey was eight or nine years old and Ridgeway's driving and Bailey's in the passenger seat. And then I think they, they switched and he's letting Bailey put around and he leans over. He says, just put it to the floor and I'll hold the steering wheel. And so they buzz the, they buzz the pit where everyone's hanging out at or the camp where everyone's hanging out at doing 70 or 80. And everyone knows that Bailey Cole is the one driving and they want, you know, Dave, Oh my God, my son, He's gonna wreck. He's gonna. <laughs> Chris, Bailey? why would you let him do that? Oh yeah, there's pictures of Bailey and his samurai, just stock bone stock samurai at the lake bed, like three and four feet in the air. And this, like, you you gonna break it? Oh yeah, I'll break it. But man, he rode the wheels off of that thing. Here's a backstory. Now Bailey's super talented. Bailey is the first second generation tin bender, which is kind of cool. Dave Dave was jumped in as a tin bender way later, uh, when he was just a just a dirty, dirty, dirty dude showed up at TDS, just, just covered in dirt and in this clapped out Toyota 4Runner. And I mean, clapped out, broken exhaust leak sounded, just clapped out runner with this nasty cage in it. And that's what drew me to the rig. I was over there looking at, and that's where Dave Cole and I, and I met. And then, uh, you know, he went wheeling with us and, you know, it was just something about Dave. So he got jumped into the vendors. So it, you know, it's kind of cool that this little backyard club or, I would say even more of a brotherhood um, is uh, making some pretty big waves now. It's kind of cool. 
No, it abs- it absolutely is. Uh, I think my first my first memory of certainly of, of Bailey and it was Bailey and uh, Jeff Knoll's son, and they are building booby traps on the course. <laughs> Uh, like the night before KOH, I want to say it was 2009. It might've been 2010. They're out there with like shovels building like Mexican, like South of the border, Baja thousand traps, like tank traps, booby traps. It wasn't wasn't far off the starting line. Yeah. I remember them going, Hey dad, can can we, can we shovel some? He's like, you just go for it. However, Dave, you know, didn't think they were going to do anything, but yeah, they're, you know, 36 inch, three foot deep, (laughs) deep holes. Right, right yeah, they, there. They wore themselves out with a shovel. <laughs> I was like, wow. And they were, I'm going to guess, I want to say they were like 10 then. Maybe they were 11. Maybe, you know, somewhere in there. They were, they were pretty damn young though. I was like, wow, these, I mean, just living it. Just just trying to mess mess it up for their dad's friends and all his friends. <laughs> just, uh, yeah, those are good times, really. So this about 2005 or so is when you actually met Danny when you were living in uh, Apple Valley there with Ridgeway, right? Yeah, um, we had known each other for a while. She wheeled with a, another guy that, you know, we'd go wheeling with and stuff. And, and uh, we knew each other, um, we're just friends. It wasn't nothing there. But I, I left Schaefer's, um, went to uh, Apple Valley. Um, she was uh, going to beauty school then. Our, our paths crossed and we started talking. And, and uh, this was right about the same time I was building uh, JR's rig, JR Reynolds. It's a... It was actually the first rig that won King of the Hammers. It was kind of cool. It was an early model Bronco. Just all tube chassis, but um, cut the body down to look like an early Bronco. Um, yeah, I, I fell for Danny right then. It was kind of cool. Uh, Danielle was, you know, even then was just super motivated, super driven. And and she put up with my crap. You know, I'd, I'd fall asleep on the floor building rigs. And, and uh, that same time frame, I'd built a rig for Dustin, Dustin Webster. So I was spending a lot of time in the shop, and I was fully engulfed in in the off road thing and building cars and that life. And then I was competing, you know, spotting or driving and on the West Coast and East Coast, and so it was just a lot of time. And she put up with it. In fact, she encouraged me to do it. She she knew there's something I love to do. So yeah, we're now we're we're still together. <laughs> Surprisingly, right. no, it's so, amazing. Yeah. And at that point, Dan Dubois out of Alabama gives you a ring. Want you to come down to Blue Torch Fabworks? Yeah, he, he uh, so Dan, you know, we're on the internet and we're you know cranking away and building cars and, and doing pretty good. Just you know, had some. I'm nobody special. I had some really talented drivers, some really good people that made me look good. That was that was about it, you know. But uh, you had a lot of guys that believed in you and said the right things the right time and kept you. I mean, I know you're a highly motivated individual. But it's always nice to get those pats on the back that and to kind of keep you between the ditches and going in that path to success. And you had a lot of people. You we've already talked about. You know, Lance Clifford, Camo, Eric Linker, Schaefer's. Yeah. You know, we're doing a car for Jr. We've got a a, a three time king at this point, and Jason Shearer. You've got yeah. a, you've got a pedigree of people that you've done work on their cars, and that's. And we haven't even made it past like 2007 at this point. That's what's yeah, crazy. Peter Mazzoni and Josh Bureau. Uh, Josh Bureau is now the president, the reigning now the president of the Pirate uh, Pirates of the Rubicon. Built him his first comp car, so it's kind of cool. I, you know, I, these these teams and these um, you'd see something in them, and I could be kind of I don't know 
kind of selective on who I wanted to build a car for, who I who I wanted to work for or work with. So, you know, these people all had some something like you guys did in 2008. You know, you get it's just something you guys could see that you you really truly were involved and loved it, and we're gonna we're gonna do something with it. And it's cool. Everybody's still heavily involved in that stuff. Anyway, Dan calls. He you know he says, hey, I, you know I'm. I'm looking to, to step things up here at Blue Torch. I really want to take it to the next level and, and like what you're doing. And would you fly out here and, and uh, come come talk to me? So I flew out and, uh, for a week and, and hung out, and we built a, a tough truck <laughs> and went out to the local tough truck and just flogged this Bronco that we built. But it was fun. It was it was a neat way as a you know to know the crew and get to know everybody and and highlight a little bit. Of, you know, building experience and build a cage while we were there. And so it was, it was kind of, you know, kind of cool. And so we hit it off and I, and I back to Dan again, but Dan is a, Dan's a, a special guy. And I don't mean special. I mean, he's, he's, he's a talented guy. He's really good in marketing. He's not short bus. He, yeah. Not, not short, short bus. bus special. He's a, but you know, anybody who's ever met Dan, he's a, you know, Southern guy, just kind of monotone, but he's, he's a, He's infectious. You know, he, he has big plans. He has big, big visions and, and big dreams. And he's really good at, you know, putting a, putting a talented team together. And, and he has, I'm going to say he has the balls that I don't. When it comes to business like that, I love building stuff. Shops have FU2. I've had a couple of businesses, a razor cage business and, and these other things. And the business part of it, I guess I just like being broke, but <laughs> the business part of it is just not what, what, what drives me. It's, it, that's the pain in the ass part. The, to me, it's just going out and, and burning and creating and trying to create a better mousetrap or just the, the passion. I love going to bed, you know, dirty and sore, and that's a successful day to me. It's just not a not not the amount of money in the bank, but, you know, anyway. So it, we go out to Dan, and yeah, I worked for Dan for a while, and, uh, you know, uh, we built a Becca Webster, her Red Bull car, and, and just a dozen or so chassis and, and just all kinds of different rigs out here. It was kind of cool. And, uh, then I had a, a friend pass away in California. Uh, so I was out here for a few years. Had a, had a friend, uh, Mike Johnson pass away in California, you know, young guy, super, uh, super focused on, on his future and, and retirement and, and setting those goals and obtaining them. And he was, he was definitely the guy on track, you know, and he was always the guy when we'd go four wheeling, he goes, well, I can't go. I don't have money for you know gas or I don't have this or that. So he'd always set himself up, you know, for the future. And then my, uh, uh, passed away. He got a Werner's disease and, and like in a month, man, he went from out riding and wheeling to, to passed away. And that was, that was gnarly, man. He, uh, so we went back anyway, you know, my, my ex-wife at the time, yeah, Becca, then I went back and, and sued my ex-wife for custody of my kids. It was, uh, it was rough, but I had to leave Blue Torch. So I, I didn't want to, but I was, was one of the things. So I went back and I got Suter and, and Danielle and I took custody of the boys. They're five and eight now. You know, I so I had to settle down a little bit. We started uh, John uh, Flash, another tin vendor, and I started FU2 Fabrication Unlimited Squared. Didn't matter how we got the FU2, just as long as we get have an FU2 on a hat and a shirt because they sold like crazy. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that way I could, you know, we still build stuff. We were we we got kind of away from the off road rock crawler stuff and we went a little bit more into the class one and some trophy truck stuff 1450 built a lot of stuff like class 10 cars and stuff and, and a lot of maintenance and repair stuff on desert guys but that's where we meant uh Brent Hagerberg who is uh 
with four wheel parts, uh, showed up at the shop one day and wanted a, a car. So we uh, modified a car for him and, and I've been racing four wheel parts and him for the last, well, 10, 10, not 10 years. It's been a while, seven, six years. It's been a, while. It's been a long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's been a long time. It's just, uh, you know, everybody's has these highlights about ultra four and, and, it's kind of a, honestly, it's kind of a blur because, you know, we've, we've been in and around ultra four and King of the Hammers since, since honestly it's conception. Um, you know, we, Dave, Dave had this crazy idea. We'd always go out as tin benders and, and the hammers was our, our home track, man. That was, that was where we would spend our time anytime we could almost every weekend. And we'd always race each other back to camp and whoever's last person back to camp had to be the, the beer wench, you know, and, and serve everybody else beers all night, and we'd smash each other, and it was brutal getting back. We'd roll each other trying to get back to the lake bed. But uh, Dave, Dave approached Jeff. They came up with this big idea to have this race, and honestly, I laughed at him. I, you know how much work that is, you know, promoting this stuff. And uh, but he did it. So jump forward. We had this. He wanted to do a promo video, so I showed up at this little Honda powered thing, that little buggy that we were building for honestly for the border patrol, but, uh, we shot this promo video and I just destroyed this thing. I rolled it like three or four times during the day of shooting video to try to promote this new race, this new idea, King of the Hammers. And that was the car I was going to race in, in the race, but I ripped the motor out and ripped the transmission out and stuff. So I, I, I wasn't racing the OG thing, but so honestly from the, so there was the, there was the OG 13 though, as we know it today, it was only 12. You yeah. you truly should have been the thirteen. I mean, I I think you should be petitioning Dave to be like, listen, it's been fifteen years. Yeah. I'm I'm laying claim to that thirteen. <laughs> I am thirteen. Dave Dave's uh, been super accommodating to some of my stupid. You know, I want to play play truck night on the jumbotron. He's like, whatever you want, man. And he he's a uh, a lot of people know Dave when he's on the lake bed. It's it's all about business, and you just don't approach Dave. But you know, he's a brother. We we have a long history of. We actually got a fist fight, Dave and I did. A lot of people don't know that either, but we were at John James Detoy's house and, and got in a fist fight. That was throwing hands with Dave Cole. Um, yeah, he's, a big, he's a big boy. I mean, you're not small, you're tall. But yeah, it was, he was, I'm like 6'2, he's like 6'6 six, six or something. Him and Chris, his brother, just ridiculously big, but it was more like a wrestling match. I was working on a rig and he wanted to, to wrestle. He was, you know, we'd been drinking a little bit. And anyway, I, you know, I had wrestled. I wrestled through high school, and I, I just some jujitsu and stupid stuff. Anyway, so it ended up that we agreed to disagree, and we kind of got a little spat, but <laughs> it, was, it all ended up okay. So you moved back. Uh, you're living in Ridgecrest now. And you're you're banging out race car stuff. I mean, you you did some desert stuff. I remember seeing you on an interview, and I wish I could remember who carried this interview or where it was. If it was YouTube or, but I feel like it was on TV actually. And you were standing with a rock crawler on one side, well, as a KOH car on one side, and then a desert truck on the other side. And you, and you just put it in perspective in such simple words. I'm going to try to re recapture those. It was you pointed at the trophy truck or class one car. I don't remember what it was. And you said, Baja's been going on for 50 plus years. We got 50 some years or 60 some years of technology to make this car go fast off road. On my right hand is this rock crawler that we're trying to get it to go fast up rocks and try to go get it to go fast out in the desert. It's been that kind of genre of racing has been around for seven or eight years at this point. It was a very short number. And you're like, we are on, we're 
getting to that point where we can make these go almost as fast as those and it's almost laughable. Yeah, in the in the short amount of time, you know, uh, rock crawling, people don't, well, now it's later, but rock crawling really didn't have its full-on professional, like, competitions until, you know, 99, 2000. That was where it started. And then KOH didn't even, we didn't, nobody raced rock crawlers and, until KOH came out. We, X, I say, I'll take that back, XRA. But XRA were short little, little jaunts. They weren't, you weren't in the car for, you know, five minutes. It was a couple minutes. Yeah, and, they weren't endurance at all. And yeah, so, so we're finally to a point where it's so cool to see that technology actually flowing. It flowed from the desert into rock sports forever. Now, all of a sudden, the last few it's years, it's flowing back. It's going now off-road, guys. And this will date this video completely. But today, Robbie Gordon released pictures of his four-wheel drive trophy truck. Oh, absolutely. And they all, it was all just a, you know, all oh, let's do it off of Pro 4 stuff. You know, it was just a Chevy front end. And now, and they all laughed and there's just no way a four-wheel drive. Yeah, I can see the advantages, but you got to keep it simple. There's just no, no way a four-wheel drive will work. And you just wait, it's going to work. There's the advantage. That's what it's all about. When it, and that absolutely, without a doubt, is all about Ultra 4. And every one of those guys, is the, the now the backflow on a ten year old sport going going back the other direction. So you know, for all these guys, you know, um, these these rock roll builders and stuff that have that have put in the time, the old the old guys. I, how cool is that, man? In ten years, you you've now just set this fifty year old you know motorsport and turned it in a completely different direction, and that's pretty cool. It's a wicked cool time to be involved. It really Absolutely. is. And, and smart guys, guys smarter than both of the, well, maybe not smarter than you, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 156 IQ, we're going to go back there. You're pretty, you're a pretty smart fellow. I've never been IQ tested, but I feel I've got to be, you know, somewhere close to that. I, I feel now, so, now maybe divided by two. I don't know. It's, yeah. it's, it's <laughs> up there. That's what's funny because everybody's like, man, you're retarded. Cause I am kind of a squirrel, man. I'm all over the place. I have a really short attention span unless, unless I'm, into something and really feel it. And then, then you got to go, Hey man, are you going to take lunch or are you going home tonight? Then when I, that's when I get laser focused, but, but yeah. these guys are just plugging away on different, you know, the front end, the shocks, the drive lines, the transfer cases. I mean, just plugging away on ways to make them more robust, live through the endurance and not bleed off energy, not be a, a drag on the system. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Fun well, times. How much, you know, we, we were, everybody there for a while was cryoing everything, you know, every, stuff was blowing up. So then they were freezing stuff. We were heat treating stuff and we were doing all these things that, you know, that, that were new, um, at least to the off-road, you know, the group. It wasn't, nobody was really, you were, okay, you were making bigger A-arms and longer trailing arms and, and bigger shocks and more horsepower. But there wasn't any monumental changes in off-road for a long time, a long, long time. And then here comes Ultra 4, man. And it, I'm super proud to say that, you know, I've been around since the start and to watch what these other guys, I had a small part, but these other guys, these really super talented builders are, have done and, and, and parts builders and designers and stuff, man. That is super cool. And now I'm going to bring it and throw this on you about being innovative. I've seen some stuff that you have created that has been so innovative. It's don't get me wrong. You've done tons, but there's two pieces that stick out in my mind. One, you did a chase truck that had 
I'm going to call it garbage truck arms. Like you, you pull up to a garbage <laughs> truck and you, and the garbage truck lifts the the dumpster up and dumps it in the back. You did a chase truck. This is a, and what was it? Probably 2014, 2013, 2012 Ford Super Duty crew cab, long bed with a service bed, chase truck, a California, Southern California chase truck. And you made it with these, I'm with, you probably have a very technical name for it, but I'm going to call them dumpster arms. And those dumpster arms had a huge fuel tank on the end of a fuel cell. How many gallons was that fuel cell? 300? It's, no, no, no. It wasn't, it wasn't that big. It was honestly, it the cell was, yeah, it looks huge because it was kind of a pancake thing. I wanted the, to, the profile to be really low. So there was two, two different ways you can go. Everybody's using either a pressurized tank in the back, a bladder, so you can pump fuel into the truck. You don't have a tower. You don't have anything. But now you have this tank under pressure, and you have bladder, and, you, and it takes up just a crap ton of room in the back of a truck. So the other idea was put this fuel tank over the, over the roof of the truck, low profile, and have it on electric actuators so the thing would stand up, and it would stand up. You know, it'd, it'd get a good 15 feet in the air. It would give me about 13 pounds of head pressure on the thing. So you could you could fill a truck just or buggy just ridiculously fast, and you could travel with the fuel on the truck. There, they didn't take up any bed space, and it was super simple. And, and it took one guy to set up. Everybody's seen fuel towers. You know, you 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 buy a tower um, and you go out there and you prop the thing up, you stuff the legs in it, and then you transfer the, the fuel up and on and on. But that's Man, that's a pain in the ass, and it takes a couple guys at least, or you know, four guys if you're if you're lucky. But this way, one guy could show up in a truck on a remote pit, have you know, 100 gallons of fuel with him, and in no time at all, set a ground rod, hit the button, which is actually keyless because I don't know that was cool. So it's just a remote wireless, and you'd stand this fuel tower up, and it would uh, it would pump its own fuel, it, uh, feed itself, and then you know, one guy could could man a remote pit so i you know, it was, it was kind of cool <laughs> all right for for those who got a little bit inundated with the technology that we went pretty deep dive on that just like in nascar where guys jump over the wall to fuel a nascar race car in desert racing it's the same off-road racing it's the same but they tend to happen not near a pit that or what the traditional pit that you see on tv they happen in the middle of a sand plane in the middle of nowhere near nothing and it's just you you roll up Maybe there's 10 other teams there with their trucks. They get out with their fuel jugs or their fuel tower. And then when their race car shows up to the middle of nowhere, Nevada, middle of nowhere, Arizona, middle of nowhere, Baja, they, the car pulls up and there's a fueler and he stabs the dry brake on the fuel system to transfer fuel from either your tower or in this case, this fuel system that I call it on, on garbage, <laughs> on dumpster arms that's lifted 15 feet in the air. So it has this huge head pressure and the, the fuel, just based on the height that the fuel is having to drop down a hose and out to a race car, it does it very, very, very quickly. And where I found this to be highly entertaining and highly innovative was the fact it one guy could do it. it you didn't need three guys to set up the fueling tower. It was so quick. It was so easy. There was no transfers. It was there i was surprised you know not more people have done it i'm sure it's not cost effective for most people but man it was a beautiful thing that i saw you uh innovate up yeah it was kind of cool that uh it was ray becker and he he trusted me he, he brought me a paper plated you know f-450 it was a brand new ford platinum 
like it was brand new and he says hey man i want you to turn this into a chase truck i just got it back from douglas bodies and they put a put a utility bed on it but i want i want this thing spare tire racks and just all kinds of crap hung on it and you try to make it just as as easy and uh, painless as possible everything has a place and everything in its place and and, and then it still has to be able to kind of peep out across the desert and in these remote locations and stuff and and as you know you know going from I'm an old desert racer that went to rock crawling and stuff with the logistics with desert racing. is just horrible. You have to have, and now kind of King of Hammers has gone the same way. You have to have a, you know, 10 really good buddies that, <laughs> that you, hopefully that, that you can talk into going out there for the weekend or, or the week at King of the Hammers. So logistics is hard to come by and finding that many close friends that want to give up everything to go help you race. But this way you can have one guy take the truck out to wherever. So you can, you could do it with a lot less manpower was the idea. And these chase trucks, I mean, they are the workhorses of the desert racing community. They are almost, almost all of them are crew cabs. They fit four or five guys in it. Then they have a service bed on them, multiple spare tires, jacks, about every part you think you can carry aside from probably an engine. A lot of guys carry square transmissions in them. They are, they're workhorses. They are utility units that get torn up. So it's really funny with, I remember seeing that it was uh, the guy showed up with the platinum. It was the the top Black of the line. Beautiful, it's yeah, still beautiful, beautiful truck. And then we're gonna go take it out to uh, run it down some gravel roads, run it down some uh, some goat trails. It's gonna get scratches down the side from brush. That's crazy. Speaking of, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this just I'm gonna I'm, because we're talking about brush. I actually have a a, a quick story. You were running in a, this was the Mint 400 a few years ago. You were running in a 6100 truck. I didn't know this at the time. And my car, I caught you guys, came up from, came up from the, we came around a turn and you guys actually, it was a hairpin and you guys cut the, the last hundred feet off the hairpin. It would, it's, no, yeah, no. yeah, no, 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 it wasn't short. It, it's, I don't, I don't call that short course at all. That was, it was yeah. just because the course is so close together. Absolutely. My co-driver in that event was Miles. I probably talked about that this before, but uh, Miles is a terrible co-driver. He's heard me say this a billion <laughs> times, so this isn't new information for him. He's a good driver, terrible co-driver, and so I'm not watching the GPS. Had I been had I been watching the GPS, we would have turned probably before you turned. And we come around the berm, and there you guys are, jump out in front of us, and I'm wickedly faster than you guys at this point. Oh yeah, and and so we'll drive car, and I jump over, and we just start. I load up Miles' side of the car with 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 scrub brush and sagebrush and everything as we go around <laughs> you, siren on, and we're like, you know, man, that sixty one hundred truck, we never gave him a shot to even get over because we were on him so fast. Flash forward a day, two days later, it might even been later that day, and run <laughs> into you, and you're like, holy cow, y'all came out of nowhere. We saw you go by, and then you're like, why didn't they turn? And then yeah. here you came again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but now Easy Rick, man, you you got to give him props to you. That that was a that was a great little car. Oh yeah, you know that that car came out of uh you know Dave Schneider DSI his it came out of his head and then ended up in my hands and then Rick pulling you know putting it all together and making it go vroom vroom and move from A to B pretty quickly. Yeah, but, but it was cool that you did that. You know, I'm gonna and I got to give you props because that 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 race and those that time right then um to unicorn set got a lot of people's attention in the in the uh, 1450 and, and some of the the even the trophy truck guys you know they used to laugh at you know 
Well, look at what the hell is that big old 40 inch tired thing going to do? You know, we did Vegas to Reno and stuff like that. And, uh, but you're like, God damn, that thing is fast. Like that's fast. We, uh, it always qualified good. It was not a good endurance car. I did not have luck with making it survive long distances, but we always, it was almost a joke going out that that thing was always the first car off the line that didn't have a chase helicopter. Yeah, no, it was fast and it, that got a lot of attention and that got people, I don't, I don't know if that was the vehicle, but it got a lot of attention to a lot of teams that really started to think about putting four wheel drive in, in some of these, these trick trucks, you know? So, um, and now you, they see the validity in that and you, you leave somebody on the line, you get into silt or you get into a sand wash or you, you get into some of the rough terrain, you see Baja and they go, Oh, this big, huge traffic jam. And you're all for what? It's just a little sand wash. We laugh at it, but you know, you're in a, in a high horsepower truck or buggy, but you know, that's rough for a two wheel drive or a four wheel drive. You just, just laugh at it. You just go. Yeah. We came around, this is a, I'm not even sure which year it was, but it, I'm going to say 2014 Parker 425. And we're coming through one of the washes where everybody had buried their trucks in silt and it's trophy truck city, left, right, left, right. And we come around a bend. It's easy Rick in the passenger seat and he's co-driving. He's yelling at me left, right, left, right. And we come around this, you know, sagebrush and there's Robbie Gordon out of his truck, standing in the middle of the wash, directing traffic. And He's pointing like up this bank and Rick just goes, stay in it. And we crash lock the ARB in the front and shoot like pirouette around Robbie, like a, like a Ken block <laughs> drift, Ken block drift uh, some, around Robbie to, to shoot and shoot up this uh, bank. And man, we just drove around. I think we passed 35 trophy trucks at that point. It was a very, very stupid number. And they were all just buried in silt and we, we walked around them. And that was, that's my Robbie Gordon story. We almost hit him <laughs> about, about hit him. Yeah. Now we're not going to take anything from the T trucks. I mean, they're fast and there's no, like, they there's are. Oh my God. They're way faster than that car was. Yeah. Super engineering and stuff like that. But it's just neat that, that, you know, we'll fold it back that, that now they're, they're adopting our technology and the, and the work that we've put in um, to making a CV front end, you know, last from people like Lauren and Shannon, who just ruthlessly beat on those things. And, and Jason, and, and they'll live, you know, and you're, you're beating on that thing for seven, eight hours of the hammers. They still won't live up to Tom Ways, but that Tom Ways is a different kind of character. <laughs> he is. Yeah. I want to see Tom Ways on a podium very, very badly. He's a, uh, you know, I've got many, many favorites, but he's a guy who I find just very interestingly do. Like he's been so close, so close, so many times, always the bridesmaid, never the bride. It just, he did that same, same story, same story as you. We were, we were headed out to, out on the, on the back stretch. We're in the, I'm with Brent. We're in the new car and, uh, we're, uh, buck 15, buck 18, somewhere out there. It's pretty rough. And I'm like, well, we're calm down. We're, we still got, <laughs> we got a long day. We're cooking along and we're, we're gobbling up people. And I'm like, I think it's some, somebody's coming. Somebody's coming. Somebody's coming. Get over. And I'd screaming like, get over. Tom never let, he had to have been doing a buck 30 and he passed us through the, through the sagebrush and just like, we didn't stop, but it, it was fast. He was fast and it would look smooth, but if Tom's fast, if he can keep a car under him, he's going to do well. I hope so. I think he believes so as well. I know his, he and I have uh, strategized, ran race strategies by each other on numerous occasions. And he has a, he has a good head on his shoulders about <laughs> the win. Now, 
once he puts the helmet on and the rest and the red mist, you know, happens, I don't know. I mean, we've we've all seen what's happened with that, but so <laughs> okay, you you where are know, we on our <laughs> oh no, yeah, where are we at in this in the where process? No, you you'd built that IFS car for Brent G. I'm not even gonna Brent. I'm sorry. I apologize. I can't say your name. It was a Trent Fab car. Derek and Trent Fabby built it, and uh, it was sent off. And uh, <laughs> Desert Racer bought it. They they put it together in a hurry, and uh, he raced it a few times. Did really well. Had a trophy truck body on it. Just an Ultra Four car as a trophy truck. You're yeah. talking about it was TJ Flores. TJ Flores. Oh, sorry, TJ brother. I know I'm gonna see you, and you're gonna smack me, and and I deserve it. <laughs> it's been a long day. It did. It did good though. It was. It was good. Yeah, and so until it wasn't, we had a Brent and I had a Brent and I had an accident. We were shooting up the sand hill, coming back into the man. All these racing stories. We could go on for hours and hours, but we're coming back <laughs> coming back to our town. We go up the the sand hill. Um, anybody who's been to what year yeah, was we, this about? Was this twenty eighteen? Um, it's been a couple of years. Two two years, yeah, maybe seventeen, eighteen, somewhere around there. I think you're headed back towards Hammertown. You have to go up up sand hill, and sand hill is just. Now, it's a long pole, deep, soft, silty sand with huge Volkswagen-sized rocks sticking up. Yeah, and the year before, we had gotten stuck in some traffic, and we got buried, and we just had we had a rough time going through there. If you lose momentum on the hill, you just it's rough to get going again. And uh, this year, Brent was a little, a little excited, and uh, he he hauled ass up that thing. And it the car being an independent just g'd out right before this rock and so the suspension collapses kind of it, it takes it up and the ground clearance disappears and we center punch this rock and we were probably only doing 30 miles an hour man it dead stopped us just dead stopped us knocked us both out we come rolling back down the hill and and uh you know i i didn't think that i was knocked out i'd been knocked out several times in my life but uh i, I look out the window and here's larry mccray standing in the window and i'm i'm thinking to myself how the hell did he get here so fast but i'm like ah. Huh. You know, and I'm talking to him. He's like, "Yeah, you're knocked out." So I look over at Brent. He's still slobbering. He's making the, you know, snoring sounds. <laughs> but he's <laughs> so he comes to, and and uh, the safety crew was awesome there. But it ended up we we both broke our backs on that shot. It was uh, it was pretty gnarly. Took a Brent took a life flight out. My dumbass. I I said I wasn't going to take the flight, and uh, they pulled the <laughs> it smashed a diff, and it it, it smashed a front drive shaft and T case, and they blew the axles it pushed the whole motor forward it was just the car was messed up but it could still roll so some of the guys that were there pulled the pull the cvs out and uh i drove the car back a couple miles back to camp with a with a broken back and yeah, dumb but kind of hard-headed yeah it was uh erica gee pulled me out of the car when we got um, back there and he saw he's an awesome guy we got back to pits and he pulls me out on the backboard and he lays me out on the ground he saw dude you really need to go to the hospital you got a broken back but yeah he was right. <laughs> so now the you're not going to say the name of the hill, are you? Yeah. You oh are. yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. That hill is it's a simple one. I mean, everyone the, the foreshadowing is so there. Two guys break their backs, and yeah. it's a hill. I mean, it's, it's this stuff writes itself, Bender. <laughs> I don't even have to. I don't even have to say the name. Everyone just yeah. already, everyone's already repeated it in their head in their car on their morning commute at this point. Yeah, Broke but back now mountain. <laughs> Broke back mountain in real life. Dude, and it fits. It so fits. We've got trails like Spooners. Yeah, yeah. Trails like Chocolate Thunder. <laughs> trails like Backdoor. Yeah, they, 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 all, they all name themselves. 
It's true. But there's, you know, there's a cool one off of Wrecking Ball. It's called Bender Alley. And it's a rough little, you know, what something you could be, I don't know, proud of. Or you go, yeah, it's Bender Alley. And they're like, so where <laughs> was Brookback Mountain really named after you guys? You're like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But whatever. And for anyone tuning in, I, I did name, name drop some trails on this. But the story about Spooners, it really was. Two fellows were either going up or down it, and they it was way longer. They thought they were on outer limits. They were not. It, the desert gets very cold at night. Yeah. They, I believe they're in an XJ. I may butcher this. But they end up sleeping in the back of this thing, spooning each other for heat. And yeah. they finish the trail the next day, and like, yeah, that thing's worth It's Spooners. Yeah. So <laughs> that's like a nickname. You got you to earn your nickname, man. So it's, yeah, I, I, I'll live with it. It is what it is, but. At least it's a good story. (laughs) You got to name a trail out there. I mean, the hard way. Literally, I mean, the hard way. You broke a back out of it. KOH, though, you've been, you know, like I said, you've been heavily involved. We all know heavily involved in this. Your father, heavily involved in this, Krusty. And then we lost Krusty shortly. Was it just before that year that you broke your back? Or was it this fall? Yeah. Yeah. Um, It was, and and I have to give a shout out to Dave Cole. It was pretty awesome. Krusty's always been, you know, he's, our biggest fan, everybody's biggest fan. And he made sure to talk everybody's ear off all the time. And he always, you know, wears this dumb camo hat or stupid umbrella hat or whatever. And he was always a joker. And he always, but he always, always wanted to welcome everybody kind of thanks for showing up and, and talk, talk to everybody he made it a point to. And Dave, uh, Dave made him grand marshal one year. It was, a, it was super cool that that was his, his whole being for the last 10 years was, looking forward to going out there and, and seeing all the, uh, everybody because he was getting too old and frail to, to really go out wheeling much anymore. So he would go out there and, and just shake everybody's hand and, and talk. And, and Dave made him the grand marshal. And it was just, you know, as he was going down and, and I'd spend time in his hospital room and stuff, he would still talk about that as one of the highlights of his life. So Dave brother, love you, man. Man. He was, he was a character. He was just a total character, bigger than life out on the lake bed. Very, you know, everybody knew him. Uh, riding around his old beat up, raisined out Toyota, just beat to tarnation. And yeah. he, he'd have his camo boonie hat on. You'd yell at him. He'd stop and wave, you know, or talk to you, flag you over to talk to you. He's a good, he is a good dude. But I think this is a point where we're going to talk about your hit show. You had two seasons, Truck Night in America on History Channel. You guys have killed it. Absolutely blown it out of the water. Yeah, it did good, man. I was super, I, you know, I wasn't sold on the show, honestly. To begin with, they, they came and they said, who do we need to talk to? They asked a couple of people. Production company went out to King of the Hammers and I interviewed a few people and said, who do we need to talk to? And they came came to the tent and, and uh, interviewed me. And I honestly kind of blew them off. I, I'm like, it's a TV show. How cool could it be? So I was kind of a smart ass, kind of like normal. And anyway, it comes around that made it through the, the cut and went to chemistry test where they had narrowed it down to seven guys and, you go in and sorry, talk in front of the camera and see how you do on film and and uh actually made it to the final four and, and that was us, man. It was Pistol Pete, Abe Wine, and uh, Glenn Flake and I. You know, I they say those names. If anybody in the off road community knows Pistol Pete, um we lost him. Man, we've lost a lot of really cool people over the years. Pete was one of the coaches. Glenn Flake, Pete was a trophy truck racer, uh, been in the off road community forever. Glenn Flake is probably the most uh famous skier snow skier of all time and he's just super cool he's like the energizer bunny he'll wear you out and then uh, abe wine abe wine's like a brother from another mother he's just a you know blue collar guy 
three generations of a diesel mechanic. His grandpa owns a shop and his dad works there and he works there. And so he's, he's always around, you know, cars and, and semi trucks and off road and just, just super cool. So we, we, they started a show truck night just five guys show up and, uh, you know, they bring their own rigs, own stuff that they built. And then they, they go and they, they compete on stupid challenges and kind of like American Ninja Warrior for four wheel drive, you know, you tug of wars and doing stuff that, you know, it's kind of goofy, but it, it, it still tests out your rig. It's pretty cool. But to see, you know, that was a part that I really liked about the show or these guys, and you could see the the passion, the love that they put into these rigs and then go out and, and test them and, you know, beat them up. But, you know, no more than we do on any given weekend, I guess. Yeah, the blood, sweat, and the tears. And you could just see the hours that they've spent in the shop worn on their sleeve. Oh, loved it. And then these guys aren't competitors. Most of them have never competed in their vehicle before. And to see the fog of war set in and, you know, I'm a little jaded, been, uh, been racing for the last, you know, 40 years. So, well, 43, whatever, but now I sound old. <laughs> so, you know, you see these guys in their first competition, you're trying to, you know, talk them down off the ledge and, you know, the fog of war sets in and you're like, Oh, go calm. You got to You got to make the vehicle last. You got to save it, save it, save it. And, you know, green flag drops, you take your head off, you sit on the gas pedal and, and things go sideways. And they usually did. And it was super awesome to watch the show. You know, the show did really well. We, we were the top in the top 10 for Thursday television, network television, like 23 or 26 different countries. And it was it was all over the place. And it was cool, man. All like these families, mom, dad, the kids, everybody would sit down and watch the show. So everybody had something to take away from it. So it was for me. You know, I, I get to play in the shop. I get to meet these guys and, and feel their passion and, and the love for off-road and, you know, doing stupid stuff. And so it was a perfect fit, man. I loved it. And we did it for a couple of years. Couldn't come to an agreement this year on on, uh, on the price. It's an expensive show to make. So, you know, there's you got American pickers you can run for, you know, get 50,000 people to watch it. And it doesn't cost you anything to, for a rerun or, or you, you watch a – a season of truck night, which is, you know, $5 million or whatever, five to seven. So it's an expensive, expensive show, but you know, hopefully somebody will, somebody sees some validity in it, pick it up. It was, it was a lot of fun. I'll tell you. Well, I think what you guys have proven that there's a business model there that you found a market, you found a niche and I, you use the, the analogy, the, you know, American Ninja Warrior, the automotive American Ninja Warrior. Uh, and I, I love that analogy. I don't know. I might have even said that uh, at one point or another, but yes, people could sit down and they could they would find which one of the five characters they were going to cheer on that night, and you own that guy. I mean, that was that that's my person. That's my person. I'm fully committed on on them. And then uh, and you'd fight over in your household. You're, you're sitting on the couch. You'd fight over who had who, and you know somebody ha- happened to have a you know a bright colored vehicle. Then obviously th- that was going to be the biggest fight because the kids always want like the brighter colored one. And I'm always looking for the guy that looks more like you, you know, like the beard, he looks a little rough. I'm like, I bet he knows how to work on his junk and it's, yep. it's better junk than the other guy's junk. And, and they had, we had a wide, wide variety of rigs from Cherokees and, and um, FJs to Toyota trucks and, and a, a Lexus. We, you know, all kinds of different rigs, all kinds of different people from, from all over the country, man, Maine to California. And, and you know, we, I think we had, in the 120 contestants, we had 40 something different states represented. So it, whether whether you made that connection from the state or the vehicle or the the type of car, because some of them were big mud trucks and some of them were rock crawlers and you know some were just trail rigs and some were honestly you know 
20 inch 22s on little Nissan, you know, pavement princess, but they were out there and they were, they were going. So whether you made that connection with the person, the vehicle or the, or the state or whatever you did, you had a vested interest. In fact, I'm going to spill the beans a little bit. There were some, <laughs> some, some moms that I, that I know that their kids or teenage sons were really into the show. So they would watch it together and they would bet, but I would give the mom the inside line on who would, who would win the episode. So they would bet, they would bet their teenage sons for who's doing dishes and stuff like that. So it got to be pretty fun. It got to be pretty funny, but now I let the cat out of the bag, but yeah. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know, you do what you got to do. Yes. Yeah. It was, it was a lot of fun. I I hope, I hope that uh, either history, you know, comes to their senses and wants to do that again. Cause it, it was summer camp for me, man. It was, it was awesome. It, it was neat being on TV, but meeting all the contestants and, and uh, kind of taking a, a step back in time to, you know, feeling, feeling that excitement for somebody who's, who's never competed being in the, the limelight, so to speak. It's kind of cool, man. It's somewhat revitalizing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that's where my, you know, as I, we talk about this role in life and this passion and, had access to a lot of big money teams and a lot of stuff like that. I, you know, I've been racing with four wheel parts and and that's definitely one of the bigger teams out there, but it's the, it's the guys that, I don't know, the guys that spend those, those nights and weekends in the shop and and maybe beg for parts, you know, do, do the lion's majority of the work and the fabrication and the stuff on their own rigs. That's, I say passion a lot, but it, it's cool, man. That, those are the guys that I idolize. Those, those guys are, those guys are badasses. They they just do it. There's no excuses. They just do it. I think that there's a lot of those guys in Ultra Four. I think there's a lot of those guys in the UTVs. They're in the stock class in the 4800 class. They're out. They they may not be in 4400, but they have they want to be involved in that lifestyle. They want they got a taste of it somehow. Either they're a member of a team or a part of a team, or somehow they've gotten in. And because it's not necessarily about the vehicle or the competition. It's about the camaraderie and the respect and the sharing your trials and tribulations, the things that beat you down, beat you up, breaking an axle shaft over on that rock or on that climb or losing a wheel over there, losing a motor there, a training. Everyone, you can find common ground with so many people on that. It's just not I love those stories too. I, you know, I get stuck doing that. I'll say, Hey, how, how you doing? You know, meet somebody and you know, where you from and on and on. Tell me about your week. And, and just the, just the stories of getting there, the, the, the building, the rig, that whole journey, and then getting there and, and then competing and stuff. And that's, you hear it a lot from people that, in fact, one of the guys on your show is like, I'm there to win, man. And that's it. If, if you're not winning, it's not worth it. And I, and I, I was just shaking my head. And, and to me, you know, clearly we're not one of the top teams, but um, Brent has a, a passion for it. He really enjoys doing it. Um, we finished once out of the whole time that we've raced together. So we ended up, you know, we're usually broken and we're walking back to camp. But it's a... Uh, or life flight, whatever. Or, or life flight, yeah. <laughs> so, but but that but if you if you don't enjoy that that ride, man, it's the it's the whole process. It's the building it. It's the logistic. It's 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 getting out there. It's it's saying hi to everybody on the lake bed and finding your place and pre-running and, and all the stuff that goes into it. And if you honestly don't enjoy that part of it, uh, you know, I feel kind of feel sorry for you because there's only one dude that's going to win. And I'm not saying don't race to win because you know, you're all out there. You all think you're badasses and you all think you have a shot at it. But uh, 
there's so much more to it than 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 just the race. I know that probably didn't make sense, but it's no, true. It, it did, or at least it made sense to me. It's it, it's standing back, and maybe this comes with age. Maybe that's what it is. But to stand back and look at the whole thing as an experience, an overall experience from A to Z versus going out and saying, you know what, it's still a whole experience A to Z, but I really only care about K. And K is king. And that is, I'm no matter what happens between uh, leading up to K and then L through Z, I care yeah. about K. There are those guys. And God bless them. I love my cheer. I cheer Absolutely. for them. I cheer them on. There are, they are our friends. Yep. <laughs> but just like you said, um, maybe it's for me, I think it's an age thing where I've gotten to the point where I can totally respect and even more so appreciate the full experience than necessarily just the, the, the rest, the red mist portion of it going for the win. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, everybody, everybody's ever been to KOH talks about, you know, the getting somebody to go out there the first time or their first time or, or seeing family members when they take them out of their buddies, when they take them out to see, see the look on somebody's face when you turn the corner and you see Hammertown or, or Hammertown at night and just the pure awesomeness of it. It's, it, it's cool, man. It, there's no, it sounds cliche. There's no way to describe it, but it is badass. It's, it's just cool. And everybody there's there to have a good time. No, we just, we just came off of uh, episode five of this show, the talent tank. I had a guy named Nate Jesse on Nate Jesse, Goes to King of the Hammers uh, with some friends. Goes to meet some friends. He just happened to be in L.A. Goes up there just to hang out one year for KOH. And he's only there for like Thursday night and Friday race. Doesn't do anything really at the pitting, but did hang out. Leaves. Goes and buys a 4,400 car. <laughs> buys an 18-wheeler. And is fully in and finished fourth in the points race in uh, the East Coast Series this year. All after just he went. Drove up from LA from a business meeting to hang out and went full in. Like that was how life changing it was for him. And I, I think all of us who've experienced it are kind of the same way. It's it's a life changing, life altering place to go. It's magical. Yeah, and now I, I I sound like I've been bagging on trophy truck guys and desert guys. So that's where I came from. That's 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 who part of who I am. But I I've had some pretty big teams and pretty big drivers, people who've like overall. Uh, Parker and stuff like that come out to the lake bed. I'm like, dude, you just got to come out here and see this. Just, I know it's not your thing, but come out and see it. And then they come, they come out to the pits and they go, holy crap. Like it is, it's way bigger than any, it's way bigger than any off-road. Like. Oh, absolutely. Just, it is the biggest thing out there. It's the biggest camp. It's the biggest, largest amount of people. It's amazing. Yeah. And to see the, the, the guys that have been racing for decades in the desert, come over to the dark side and see Ultra Four and go, wow, that thing's cool, man. <laughs> and now they have a reason to be there on Thursday because trophy trucks run on Thursday now. T1s, yeah. I call them trophy trucks. I'm sure somebody at Hammer King is going to send me a cease and desist on that. <laughs> or, or, or I'm sorry, score. I'm Roger Norman, I am sorry I used uh, your moniker. The T1s that were running on Thursday now, and it's just, that's insanity. Oh yeah, I still I'm still in awe because they're hammered down fast, ridiculously dialed in, big money rigs, and it's they're amazing to watch. It's it's cool how how good they are at doing that one specific thing. Of course, that's why I like Ultra Four though too, is because you have a vehicle that can do 
it may be not the best at any one thing, but it can do everything and do it well. That's that's cool to me. Right. So where I'm where I've got you right now, you're sitting in Alabama. You are you in Dothan? Did you buy in Dothan? Yeah, so I I bought a house in Dothan. Where were we at chronologically? I know I know you said, hey, before we're gonna we're gonna run down this whole thing chronologically, and you and I screwed that up. Ah, yeah. that's all right. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, we were, ta- we were talking about truck night, and then from truck night we started talking about trophy trucks, and then from there Boone Road. But it's still amazing. I'm like I said, I'm not gonna stop you from tangents. But 2019, here we are. A month yeah. ago, you well, two months ago was about two months ago. Ridgecrest got rocked by a nasty earthquake and a set of tremors and seven point one, and it was ridiculous. And at that time, it just so happened that I'd been talking to Dan. Dennis called me, uh, Dan Debose, back from the old owner of Blue Torch, started Moto Built, and uh, he's called me every every few months saying, "Hey man, you gotta you gotta come back. You gotta come back. We're gonna do these big things. Got these big plans. You gotta you gotta come back." And I, you know, and I. <laughs> The old, uh, you can't afford me, bro. I, you know, love you, but you can't afford me. So he would call me back. You ready yet? You ready yet? I said, no, this earthquake starts going off. Danielle's losing her mind. We slept in our, in the middle of our yard in our motorhome for like three days after the earthquake because we were still getting rocked with all this stuff. But I'd made a decision to, to sell my house. Man, so all these earthquakes are happening. And this thing is, <laughs> the buyer's like, well, I don't know. And I'm like, oh, man, we got to sell this damn house because <laughs> I'm ready to leave California. I'm, I'm one of many who've left California in the last couple of years. There's a mass exodus. But I love California. I'm a SoCal guy. Dan flew uh, Danielle and I back to, to Dothan, and he, he uh, kind of lined me out on what he has. He has some just big, big, big plans. You know, he's, he bought some really high-dollar equipment, some um, some of the best equipment in our industry, like a 10K laser and all this Bistronic stuff made a, a trip to Switzerland. So it's ridiculous. Like for people who don't know, a CO2 laser is what most lasers are. It's a, a gas. And there's some guys that we know that have some laser cutting businesses that run these, these CO2 lasers. This 10K fiber optic laser, it's huge. It cuts so ridiculously fast. It, it'll do what three CO2 lasers will do. So it's, it's really kind of an industry changer. So he has all this really efficient equipment. We're, we're gearing up, and he's he's got all these ideas, and and he, it's the it's kind of cool. Not to interrupt you, but I do want to interrupt you. You guys have a CO well, Motobilt has a CO two laser now, no, and that's what they've been operating on for about three years. And yep. Dan just put that thing for sale in the last couple of days. I see it's for sale because your new one is up and running at the new facility, or is almost up and running at the new facility. Yeah, so he's ready to cut loose a one and step over to the new one, right? Yeah, I've actually put a hold on my build and we're moving at, not as we speak, but today we started started moving. We're, we're moving into a new 85,000 square foot facility. Huge, beautiful building, all remodeled. And and, uh, and that's in o- Ozark, Alabama? Ozark, yeah. It's uh, 30 minutes, eh, 25 minutes north of Dothan. And uh, so, you know, we're hiring a whole bunch of people and he's, he's hired some super talented uh, CAD designers and engineers and, and stuff. So, you know, it's just neat. His, he's not doing, here I'm going to sing Dan praises again, but it's blurring it's blurring that line between a bolt-on, a fabricator, a professional shop. You can get professional quality parts and pieces and shock mounts and, and these pieces to put on on your rig, engineered specifically for that rig. And, and it takes some of it takes some pretty hardcore fabrication and welding on your part to cut the frame off and to do a back half kit or a front half kit and and then they also have, you know, bolt-on fenders and stuff like that. But it's kind of cool to see him blurring that that line. Is, and it's cool. He, 
you know, I agreed to come back and he lets me go out and play mad scientist and goof off on rigs. And, and so I'll build a rig and we'll take some of the pieces or, or most of the pieces and reverse engineer those and, and cat them up and, and engineer them out and then make those a sellable product. So I get to, I get to play in the shop all day. I'm, I'm on cloud nine right now. Well, one of the coolest things I've seen you do is do exactly what you're doing, but then find ways to streamline it or ways to make a better mousetrap. Just innovate that exact same part. And I saw recently this one part and you're kind of looking at me like, don't bring that stupid little thing up. But it is. It's when you're taking a piece of tube, like say a shock mount or a roll cage hoop, and you're bringing it down to from the body of the vehicle down and you want to land it on the frame rail of a vehicle. You know, if you were to slice it and weld it, you end up with a slice in the tube that's six inches long. So you'd have six inch weld down one side, six inch weld down the other side. So what most on people do, frame. yeah, yeah, on a four inch frame, right? So what most people do, and if you were to actually bend that piece of tube in, it would then stick six inches away from the frame and that doesn't get done what you want done. So what most people do is they take a little stub of the same exact size tubing. So if you have a inch and three quarter shock tube, shock hoop and you want to land it, you just take a little piece of inch and three quarter, let's call it two and a half inches long. You slice one end flush to weld to the frame and the other, and you may put a little 30 degree cut on it to where it looks kind of cool. And then yeah. you weld that little stub to the side of your frame. It sticks out. And then that way your tube comes down and lands on that little stub out. And everybody does it. I can walk out to my big, my big daily driven Missoula pre-runner truck with eight, eight, 18 inches of front travel, 18 inches of rear travel, my Raptor killer that I cruise the streets of Houston with. And that is how my front shock hoops are landed. Little chunks of tube sticking out. So you take that and you're like, man, everybody does it this way. And you decide you're going to take and do this broke metal little, what's the thickness? Is it three sixteenths? Um, yeah, the, the material is 3 sheets. I want it to be a little bit bigger than the parent material, but it's usually 120 wall is what you're building. And it's yeah. it's just a little pocket. It looks like, a, oh man, the right way to look at it. It looks, like <laughs> it, it looks like a little bitty igloo, but like a flattened igloo, like with a sloped back igloo. Like a half a pyramid, I don't know, half a pyramid looking thing. And you weld this, I guess, it, it, you know, if you held you it up. Bolt it, or bolt it. So oh, yeah, you could I, bolt it. You're right. And it yeah. has a, it looks like a little, let's say it's a diamond, you know, like a princess cut diamond in half. And then you weld that to your frame or bolt that to your frame. And then it has a little hole on the top that you land your shock hoop through or your roll cage hoop through or whatever piece of tube you're wanting to land there. And then you can weld that around there. And there's a lot of misalignment on it. Yeah. So you, it's slightly oversized. So it's, could you, once you land that, that, once you get that thing on your frame and then you, you try to land that shock hoop or that cage tie-in or the leg it gives you twice as much surface area so it's a stronger mount i think it looks better but then trying to to cope the tubes to fit in to, to land on that mount this way you don't have to do it it's a hole so the tube slides through the mount and then you you just weld it well the outside of it so it's super easy to to do and it, it's stronger and I, and I think it looks better but it, it, that, was, that was one of the things that that i find super rewarding it's so stupid simple and I'm sure somebody's done it, but nobody's, I guess, done it on that scale. So it, it's nothing that I'd ever seen, but I, I kind of shook my head. And I, I was laughing, and I went to dinner with Dan that night, and he thought, man, you're sure giggly today. And I'm like, dude, you got to check this out tomorrow. Come look at this thing. That, And we both just stood back and laughed, and we are like, how many hundreds, hundreds of little standoff tubes? I've done close to 100,000 feet of tubing I've bent in my 
40 something years of fabrication in now, now after all those, this stupid little mount, but I'm pretty proud of it. it it's, it's just a dumb little mount, but it, it just makes things easier and stronger. Different way to look at it. I may cut my mounts off of my truck just to run them. I'm serious. <laughs> just because they look so much cleaner and then they don't hold dirt up in. Yeah. They're clean little deals. And that's just the innovation that to take and be able to look at something that's so simple, so standard. We've been doing it this way forever. Why change it? And you don't you throw you take that mindset and you throw it out the window and you say, okay, let's break this down to this thing's ugly. There's got to be yeah. Here's my design parameters. That's what I you know I, I kind of nerd out that way. But here's my design parameters and 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 I and I hearken that back to to Tiny and Scrapper back in the day when when. John Brunder just kicked our ass when we were the national champs. And, and here comes Tiny. And, and John Nelson built a Volkswagen-powered rear-engine jungle gym of a stupid-looking rock crawler that we all laughed at, and we all did. We all looked, went over there and went, what the hell? This low-slung, what is it going to do? And we competed against it in a, in a, a CRCA event, a Def Nola event, back, and he just waxed us all. He just destroyed us. And it was neat to see somebody think out the outside of the box. And so I've... I've, I try to do that in, in no way to that scale, but just get your design parameters. This is what I want it to do. I want it close to frame. I want it stronger. I want it this and that. I want it easy to do. And then, and then try to try to just fit those parameters with something, not just something that everybody's done. We used to build rock crawlers. Like you said, everything was a Jeep or everything was a Samurai. That's a rock crawler. You know, hell, my first competition rig was a fat kid and I in a, in a little Samurai with a roll cage. That, that was it. Everything was a, everything was built off of something. And then, you know, here comes people with a, with a different way of looking at it. And Nelson, Nelson did that for, for all of us, changed everything. I don't know. It's kind of, I dig that stuff though. So are we going to find these little bender landers on, on the Motobilt website? Yeah. yeah. Um, they're getting priced out right now. They're, they're getting set on the market. So there's, there's little stuff like that. Some of, some of it's nerdy stuff where I like, man, I want a whole bunch of stuff on the back of the Jeep. I'd, Here's here's what I want to carry, kind of overlandy stuff, but gas cans and shovels and all kinds of junk where you can, you don't want to take up room or your soft top or any of that stuff, and it, you can stay outside. So just coming up with different things, you know, it, it's it's hard to be innovative, but I'm just trying to look at it a different way and then try to make it look look cool because there's not a lot of people that have gone to to building KOH rigs or class one cars and stuff like that who now. I wouldn't call it a step back, but go back to building bolt-on parts or, or builder parts, you know. I don't think it's a step backwards. I think it's just a, another chapter. I, I dig on it, and I and I like that um, Dan lets me, you know, kind of free range, and he, here, go do what you do and, and tell me when something cool happens. <laughs> so. Well, I'll tell you, I'm excited to see what this chapter has for you guys. I'm excited for you and Danny to be in Bama and move back and sell your little piece of California. I, don't get me wrong. There's parts of California I like, but there's many parts I yeah. they, they, they wear me out. I'm really happy that you know you know a good friend, and to, I was very excited to hear when you were able to sell your house in the middle of all the earthquakes, oh, and yeah. what you're able to take out of that house and buy three times the house, three times the house, easily three times the house in Bama, and then have have money to redo the whole damn house, and then. I still have money left over. Trees <laughs> and greenery, and I bought a lawnmower. I haven't owned a lawnmower in in ten years, and I had to buy a lawnmower, and I giggled, and everybody's looking at me laughing because I'm I'm buying. Here's this weird dude with a big goatee buying a lawnmower. Why is he laughing? And I, to me, it's funny because I lived in the desert. We had sand. There wasn't a grass. You know, it was there was nothing. But yeah, totally digging it. It it, it rains. 
the water comes out of the sky and, and people are cool and gas is two dollars a gallon and it's a trip man everybody's awesome love the south well so wrapping up all of that i want to dive into one little you know one little piece and you can elaborate on it as much as you want but there's a piece of you that has continued to excel you from and propel you through life and it's your your skill set and your ability to weld and I always like to get something that, you know, something else to go along with the interviews. And we've talked about PTSD with some guys. We've talked about uh, internet marketing, Facebook marketing. But for you, I know that welding has been something that has been there for you. And I know you're certified in everything. I want to get your dig on skills and trade schools and learning a, learning a skill to fall back on. Absolutely. Uh, Open it up. Open it up on us. Because I've been talking to, um, been been blessed too. I've been able to go around and talk to a bunch of trade schools and and college courses and and, uh, high schools, hit a couple here, hit these shop classes. Back to the Enron kind of thing. Everybody, you've been programmed from a young age, study hard, get good grades, get a good job, have a nice life. But you always wait for that next windfall, that next you know, the raise, when am I going to get my raise or when am I going to get that bonus or, or I'm waiting on my tax return or you know, there's always something and you, you, you're just kind of stuck, you're pigeonholed, you know, maybe you get a different job, but, but now you've lost all your seniority and you're, anyway, with welding, I, I learned to weld when I was seven. It's always been there. It's always been something fun for me, but it's a trade that you can take literally anywhere in the world. And there's a shortage of welders now. A, a huge shortage. You can go out and I'm not going to try to blow smoke and sunshine, but you can get, and you can make six figures if, you, if you're pretty proficient at it. I'm not saying that everybody's going to go to welding school is going to be good at it. You have to, you have to have your hood down and you have to serve your time, but it's an honest trade. It's a real trade. You can make a great living at it. And it opens up all this, any avenue that you want to pursue from, it doesn't matter whether it's helicopters to, to mining equipment, everything mechanical needs a welder. Yeah, there's robotic stuff there, but then somebody's got to build that too. It's a trade you can take anywhere. It's an honest trade. You can make a great living doing it. You know, I hate when when these speakers come in and they they promise you, you know, sunshine and roses and say that, you know, you go to this, it's going to be awesome, man. And for me, it's, it has been pretty cool. It's been rough, you know, been burnt and flash burned and 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 I'm tired and I'm sweaty and, and, you know, I'm dirty, but I have a sense of pride that I never had when I was, was a suit. When I wore my suit and tie, you know, it's prestigious and you were Mr. Park, but now I'm just Rob and, and, but I, I lay my head down and I knew that I, that I, that I, that I built something, that I did something. And I have this sense of pride and accomplishment seeing even back in the day when I was hard facing dozer buckets in the middle of the desert, you know, it, it was honest. It was real. It wasn't, it wasn't BS and it wasn't trying to sell somebody on some stupid gadget or some hopes or dreams of investing in this or doing that. It was, it was real. It was tangible. I can't say enough about it. Yeah. If anybody's even contemplating any kind of stuff like that, I would I'd honestly, I'm selling like a welding salesman, but it's true. It's, it's, and it's a huge vacuum. People don't, I don't, I don't know if it's just programming or what, but people don't, we're losing, we're losing those skilled, so skilled trades. I asked you that because you have a very interesting perspective having, you've done corporate America You've, you've worn the suit, you've made the big bucks, and then to, to weld now, always had that as a skill to foul back on, and now it's been a skill that has you know, put food on the table, uh, moved you around the country a few times, you've had a lot of fun, oh. raised, raised a couple badass boys that are serving this country very well. 
you know, taking care of your wife. It's a wonderful skill and to own a trade and to be good at a trade. Don't you're wrong. There are, you're right. There are people that are not good at that trade that have tried to pick it up. It hasn't worked out well for them. But I'll tell you, I learned similarly to weld at a very young age, eight, nine, 10, somewhere there from my grandfather with a stick welder. And then I took, you know, welding in high school is awesome. It really was. I weld all the time. I, I easily once a week. There's something that needs to, I guess when you have a hammer, everything in your life is a nail. When you have a welder, everything in your life is fixable or buildable or repairable. Kids these days go, I want to be popular. You want to be popular, become a welder. <laughs> the, the magic of making metal melt together, people think it's it's crazy. And, you know, you're not going to have, you'll have some good friends like, you know, like you. But there's a, people that come out of the woodwork. You are in demand. You're you're going to be a popular son of a bitch. <laughs> In college, you know, I, I went to Kansas State, and we've got a bar area called Aggieville. It's where you, college kids, we always we hung out and ran with some guys that were bartenders and then ran with the guys that owned the bars, and they were always building new building new stuff. You know, build a better mousetrap again. You know, get the kids to come into this one this semester, next semester's here. So they were always building stuff, and I welded a lot of staircases, a lot of handrails, I can't count how many, but I'll tell you, I didn't buy beer in Aggieville or drinks or shots for years. I mean, and, and that number, I mean, it did contribute to some delinquency on my behalf. I get that. But at the same time, I didn't have to go buy beer. You know, I was able to go out and party and party like a college kid should learn social skills and all the fun that that was all because I knew how to put a visor down and lay a bead. I'll say it, mine was mine was started out of necessity. We weren't rich. We didn't have a silver spoon. You know, if if I wanted something, my 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 dad, my grandpa made me work for it. You know, and either build it or fix it or or make something of it so that way you appreciate it. And I try to instill that into my boys. But you know, and that's how everything started. I you know desert racing. I I didn't. I couldn't afford all the tra- trailing arms and and all this stuff. So I just built it. And then people thought that was cool. So I'd sell some of that to buy some more equipment. And it's kind of crazy. All the years of doing this, all the welders have had, all the, you know, the plasma tables, all the tooling, everything. I've never, never come out of pocket or never gone into debt for any of the stuff that I've I've gotten. It's all, even racing, all the competing, all that is money that I I called my side job, the race shop. The all that money would was money I didn't take from my family. My my day job, my normal job was was what what provided for my family and all the fabrication and all the racing and all the other stuff was just, it's my hobby. It was fun. I, I do owe a lot to that. Well, just if anyone's, if anyone's on the fence about it, like I say, because I know a lot of people are, and this is going on, you know, a friend of ours, Rob Usnick, his son, Kyle started this past week at fab school. That was his call. And so this was his first week. Very, very cool deal going there to Troy's deal, uh, the fab school in SoCal. And then I've got, I've got Slauson a, came out of there. Yeah, Slauson absolutely came out of Fab School. There's a lot of guys have. Uh, there's a lot of guys that that are that are seeing seeing the the it it goes in so many different directions. You're not pigeonholed. You, you could be a pipe welder if you just want to put your hood down and weld pipe. You can do that, but it could lead, like I said, into anything from helicopters and bulldozers. You can you can get into design and fabrication and and it, I don't know that there's another field that would allow you the the lateral movement that welding does, you, you're you pretty much right in your own destiny, you know? Something that got sent to me today was 
Pipe Fitters Local 597. This is Chicago. This is Journeyman Pay Scale. Apprentice to Journeyman Pay Scale. Journeyman rate. So this is after this is after four years of learning to weld. And all of them starting out, first year is 40 grand. First year welder, paid school. Second year, 55. Third year, 65. Fourth year, 78,000. Journeyman is you make it your fifth year. 100K, $101,000 in five years with school paid for the entire time. That's 40-hour work week, full employment for 52 weeks out of the year. That's a five-year paid pipe fitter apprenticeship pl- program put on by Pipe Fitters Local 5. Ah, let me, uh, yeah, 597 out of Chicago. Those are real numbers. That is no, no college debt. You're not paying $30,000, $40,000, $50,000 a year to go to school. You're going to, in five years, you're going to be making a hundred K. Yeah. And if, and if you want to take that money and you, you do that for 10 years and you want to bankroll it into property or do anything else with it, you know, hell, you can rig out, you know, get a truck, your welder and your other stuff. Now that, that price triples, you, you can make a crap ton of money. Again, it's, it's not, it's not exactly easy work. No, it's not, but. Yeah, you could be out on a pipeline and you can make money or you could you could be doing SpaceX stuff and you could be in an air conditioned room and in a welding in a vacuum chamber. You could be under undersea welding, make crap tons of money. Life expectancy is not all that good. But, you know, you could be from the cleanest environment to, to the oiliest environment. But it, it's all where where you want to go. And the more specialized that you get into when, you know, you start some of my certification, we get into Hastelloy and Alloy 20 and titanium and stuff like that, then, you know, the price triples and, and it's cleaner and it's easier and it's, it's more controlled environment, but that, that comes with time, you know. <laughs> I know we could talk about this forever, but I did want to get, like I said, I wanted to get your take on that because you have a very interesting perspective on it. I have a perspective from basically hobby welding from a suit, you know, perspective, but you've gone from both sides of it. And I, you know, I really appreciate and value your insight on that. So what's uh, what's the future hold for the parks? Um, you know, I'm super excited here at Dothan. I'm not sure, but uh, Dan's got me sold on this idea and his big his big plans for for Moto Built, his industrial site, Anvil Industries. He does a bunch of industrial stuff, so he's he's got me kind of wrapped up right now. I'm super excited. I'm taking my my hiatus from California for sure and enjoying that, enjoying the southern life. Daniel's parents bought uh, bought property down in the Gulf. So going for my hundred hours a week and the three jobs, the show, the the industrial shop, and and uh, and FU two the race shop, hundred hours a week. Uh, I'm kind of enjoying my my forty hours a week right now, playing with my little house and and uh, spending time with Danielle. So for for the the near future, I think it's just going to be kind of taking a step back. I'll still be at King of the Hammers. I don't know if I'm going to make it to SEMA this year, although I. Absolutely enjoyed being a judge the last couple of years of SEMA. Thank you very much, Brent and Floral Parks, for that. But, uh, you know, I, I kind of want to step back. I just kind of want to get back into the lab, so to speak, and just kind of scratch my head and try to stretch my creative legs and see where this, this crazy ride Dan, uh, Dan's got going, and we'll see, we'll see where it happens. Did he throw in extra humidity with your offer? <laughs> Bro, it's lower Alabama. <laughs> when, when people go, man, it's hot. You, yeah, I don't think you really understand what hot is, but it's, yeah, you have, you know, hundred and, you know, 103 degrees and a hundred percent humidity. And phew, man, when you come from the desert where it's a hundred, it'd be 118 or 123 and it's hot, but you get in the shade and it's, it's not so bad here. There's no escaping it, but, but 
here's the bright side. I can run my air conditioner. I can set the thermostat at 68, and I can run that son of a bitch 24 hours a day, and I get my bill, and it's still less than $200. Love the South. <laughs> Rob Bender Park on the talent tank. He got us filled up, man. We went very, very long. I hope everybody enjoyed this. Thank you so much for coming on. I value your friendship. I value your insights. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, it's it's awesome to see where you've gone. It's cool. It's just like hanging out at the bar, talking to, to a good old friend, man. Again, appreciate it. Thank you. Well, beer's in February. All right, brother. All right, man. Rob, thank you. Thank you. You made it. Another episode consumed. If you like the listen, please go give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and consider writing a quick review either there or over on the Facebook page. Thank you for tuning in to this wild dive into the talent tank. Wyatt, out. Thank you for listening and taking a dive into the Talent Tank. Please like and subscribe on Instagram at the Talent Tank or our website, thetalenttank.com.